Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this very, very special edition of the Empire Podcast. This is to celebrate our 200th edition. I know, I didn't think we'd make it either. Uh, this was recorded at the Prince Charles Cinema on Wednesday, February 24th. Uh, just a couple of notes before we get into the show itself. Obviously, it's a live show. It was recorded as live. So the sound quality may not be as good as you would normally expect from the Empire Podcast. He says, acknowledging the fact that we've had... Numerous sound problems over the last 199 episodes. Uh, also, um, there may be some abrupt cuts uh, in the edit. Uh, John Nugent will try to uh, mitigate that a little bit because it was a live show. It got carried away. Some things were said uh, that maybe we shouldn't be putting out as part of a regular podcast. But anyway, if you're in the room, you had a lot of fun, hopefully. Uh, do join us for the next live podcast, by the way, if you couldn't make it. Um, and one last thing, uh, the theme tune, the Empire theme tune, Empire podcast theme tune, didn't work on the night we were trying to pipe it through the speakers it didn't work so instead i got the 300 strong audience to engage in the world's biggest bangly bang right that's the uh, the scene set the stage is set everything's set please do enjoy our 200th podcast as live On the Empire Podcast this week, we're live at the Prince Charles Cinema London for our 200th episode! <laughs> Ooh, that was amazing. Uh, hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the 200th edition of the Empire Podcast. Uh, they said it couldn't be done. They said, it shouldn't be done. Well, they're not laughing now. To be fair, they weren't laughing then either. And they really haven't laughed at any point during the last 199 episodes. But uh, never mind them. Screw the haters. That's what I say. Because we've made it to 200 episodes, which is amazing. Which means that instead of shouting, less as Sparta, Jerry Butler would instead shout, less as, and then just stop. Because, because 200 is two-thirds of 300 which is how that joke works. Uh, 200, of course, is also roughly the number of characters who'll show up in Avengers Infinity War Part 1. Yes, of course, I was going to mention a Marvel movie if you're playing bingo at home. Um, and also 200 means we're just 36 episodes behind Supernatural. That's right. We're catching up. We're coming on you, Winchesters. I mean... We're coming over you, Winchesters. I mean, um, we're coming in... Anyway... Um, over the next two and a half hours, which is roughly the same length as Batman v Superman, colon Dawn of Justice, um, and look out for the motherfucking R-rated version coming to DVD very, very soon, uh, we'll be bringing you incredible guests! <laughs> Amazing movie reviews! <laughs> I may have oversold that bit. Hot takes on the hottest new movie news! <laughs> and a bunch of giggling idiots... Which is us, obviously. Uh, speaking of which, it's time to introduce my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up, will you please welcome a man whose love of independent, foreign and obscure cinema is so great, he'd actually double-booked this evening with a secret cinema recreation of Aguirre Wrath of God at Brockwell Lido. Um, <laughs> you only managed to lure him here by telling him that this was a remake of the 100th podcast, but entirely in French. So... S'il vous plaît, accueillez notre guru de la maison de l'art, Monsieur Phil de Semlien. 
Wow, wow, wow. It's the only thing I could find in black and white. I'm just so glad I got through the French. That's kind of amazing. I've been worrying about it all day. Uh, next up, will you please welcome a man who's relatively new to the pod, but he's already destroyed in a short time here the careers of half of Hollywood with his rage-filled rants. Please put your hands together and then place those hands over your eyes and cower from the all-consuming anger, the wrath of the pod-credible pod Hulk that we call John Eugent! Look at him! He's so fucking angry! Look at the rage just coming off him in waves. He can't even control his hair, he's so angry. Uh, last but not least, of course, is our geek queen, a lady who's hot-footed it here from a day spent hosting a convention for some of the best effects people in the business over the O2. True story. Uh, panel names included How to Build Your Very Own Shirtless Winchester Robot, <laughs> Why Won't Someone Build Me a Robot Winchester, and hypothetically speaking, my shirtless robot Winchester has gone berserk and is trapped in my sex dungeon. What do I do now? Please welcome Helen O'Hara! <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear. As Chris well knows, it was a VFX festival, not special effects. So it wasn't about building robots. It was about an immersive virtual reality 360 degree experience of naked Winchesters. So, you know, totally different. Totally different. So first up to week's movie news. Now, guys, what's this I hear about Stephen DeKnight getting a massive rim job? Uh, that, is, that is not accurate. I told you I was doing it. And I as, did it. As your lawyer, I advised you not to, and, and yet here we are. Uh, yes, Stephen S. DeKnight, who is the former Daredevil showrunner, um, has been handed the reins of the sequel to Pacific Rim, which I just watched again the other night. And, you know, there's some really good stuff in there. So if they actually make a better story this time, I think we could really be on to something. Yeah. Yeah. The Battle of Hong Kong's fantastic. It's amazing. It's so pretty. It's honestly one of the most beautiful scenes, action scenes of a yeah. giant robot waving a ship at a monster that I've ever seen. Yeah. It's in the top one. It, it is. It's certainly up there. Uh, what do we think about this? So Guillermo del Toro is not directing Pacific no. Rim 2. This is a big shock. A big shock. It's a bit of a shock because he, he really loves it. Like He genuinely, deeply loves that idea and that property and, and all the movies that it was kind of homaging. Um, but I think it, it, it's, if it helps it get made, he, that's what he's going to do. I think he's, he's said all along, it's going to happen. And so if this makes it happen, then that's, that's the way to do it. So he'll still be producing. He's still going to be involved. Um, but he's not going to direct. So you're looking at someone who's going to, well, a film that's going to try and sort of streamline the mythology and create an interesting monster movie um, that makes sense. And yeah. who better to write that <laughs> than Prometheus' is John Space? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a bit harsh. I don't think you can blame very harsh. the blame for Prometheus entirely at John Spade's door. Okay. But, oh, but that's outside it, it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just around the corner from his door, maybe. Just defending John Spade. Um, I'm excited behind. about this because it means Guillermo's going to be doing something else. Has he said what he's doing? Uh, no. Is it all very cryptic? Well, we know what he's doing. He's doing a Fantastic Voyage next. So presumably he's too busy in that, too busy shrinking himself down to microscopic size and injecting himself into someone, which I believe is what directors do. Um, so what does he hear about John Bernthal in uh, Baby Driver, Edgar Wright's new movie? Uh, yeah, John Bernthal is in Edgar Wright's new movie, Baby Driver. Fantastic. What does he hear about uh, Damien Bashir in Alien? No, let's talk about that for a little <laughs> bit more. Uh, what's happening with that? 
Uh, so yeah, Edgar Wright is currently filming his next film, Baby Driver, which is a sort of uh, musical action chase drama. That's seen, he's seen, yeah, he's been quite reluctant to give it a label, but I think that's a, a pretty big label. But <laughs> yeah. let's, let's go for that. All of those labels, uh, and yeah, John Bernthal, who we know from The Walking Dead, and he's about to join the Punisher. Woo-hoo. Well, he's about to join Daredevil as the Punisher. Yeah. Um, he is joining Baby Driver. We don't know really much about his character, but he is joining a cast that includes, deep breath here, Kevin Spacey, Ansel Elgort, John Hamm, Jamie Foxx, and Lily James. That's not bad. It's not a bad cast, is it? That's not bad. Are we excited about Edgar Wright's new movie? It's been, it's been a while. It's been a while since we saw an Edgar Wright film. I want to get that guy behind Too the long. camera. And luckily he is behind a camera right now in Atlanta. Very, very excited. That's a hell of a cast. He's putting together, uh, as indeed uh, is uh, Ridley Scott. See, seamless. I'm so this is, good at this. An uh, Alien Covenant. Uh, so, uh, Damian Bashir, or Damian Bashir, has uh, joined the cast of that alongside Michael Fassbender. Uh, his and just his head. Just I his think. head. Yes. Just you know, the rest of him is is too busy. Um, so, Michael Fassbender, Catherine Waterston, Danny McBride. <laughs> what yes. is he doing in that movie? One of these things <laughs> is not like the others. <laughs> Are they just going to be like, and now for a comedy moment? <laughs> Finally, the hot rod and alien universes collide. That's <laughs> what I've long dreamed of. But wow. that would be amazing. Damien Bashir, who was uh, so good as Bob in um, uh, The Hateful Eight. It's good to say, uh, he's, I think he's a really good addition to the cast. He's one of these people who burst through with an Oscar nomination and then Hollywood didn't use him. And you're just, why not cast this man in roles? So good. Well done, Ridley Scott, for doing that. It's not really the sort of movie news you can take and run with for like 10 minutes, is it? Yeah. You know, doing an extended riff on I mean, that. Um, if we're going to do an extended riff on anything, we'd need a superhero news story. So, oh, oh. Yeah, I know. Well. I've got something written down here. And this is Justice League. It's, yeah, so, um, so there's two things that happened today. Uh, well, one is that there was an announcement in the, uh, that you could say that cynically in the wake of Deadpool making all the money because he says the F word and farts and stuff. Um, <laughs> That's why it made three hundred trillion. So. Um, that uh, Batman v Superman: Colon Dawn of Justice, which is coming out next month, is going to have an R-rated version uh, on the DVD, not in the cinemas, no. but on the DVD. So, what do we make of this? Uh, and why is it R-rated? Are we going to see Batman in Superman: Colon Dawn of Justice? <laughs> I'm just going to place this microphone gently on the ground. <laughs> Amazing. <Sure>. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think this is actually what's known as trying to have your cake and eat it, actually, because you still get the PG-13 release to draw in as the widest possible audience to cinemas, and then you get to keep your hard edge, as it were, and, uh, and, and say, no, but we're a serious grown-up superhero movie, and we have an R-rated version. Yeah. So you're, you're still slightly cynical about this one, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm sensing it coming off you in waves. Just, yeah, just yeah. a tiny little okay. bit cynical. Phil, as someone who is uh, eagerly anticipating yes. the release of Batman v Superman, Colin Don of Justice, um, I believe Why are you singling be... me out? Because you're the art house guru. Oh, yeah, there yeah, may yeah, be sorry, some yeah. subtitles in it, you never know. Um, ben Affleck has a Boston accent, can be quite hard to understand at times. Um, wh- what do you make of this? Um... <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, I can't imagine what, what it is that they're going to be showing. That you know, are they filming scene? Have they been filming scenes of incredible hard edge violence? 
the presumably just specifically on the off chance that Deadpool made a load of money. Yeah. And they might be they might be useful down the line. I don't know. I mean, look, Zack Snyder did Watchmen, right? He did Watchmen. And the yes. Black Freighter had a bit of a that was a you know, an extra, wasn't it? There was quite a lot more explicit. Well, Watchmen was film. Watchmen itself was already. Yeah. yeah, Watchmen was already, but I thought the Black Friday was just a tiny bit more beyond that. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a cynical person, but it looks like a cash grab. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a cynical person, but it no, looks like a cash grab. I, I, okay. I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see. But I mean, yeah, they're obviously already thinking about marketing the DVD and Blu-ray because yeah, that's this, still a big deal, isn't it? This is interesting, though, isn't it? Did they film an R-rated version? Because I can't imagine that they took the time and the money and, and on a film of this scale to also film stuff that they... Because they know exactly what you can get away with at PG-13 and what you can't. So are they literally adding extra blood splatter? Like, wh- what is the difference? <laughs> so uh, Justice League of America... Uh, well, Justice League Part 1, that's what they're going to call it. Yeah. I'm not going to call it of America. Um, it, it's uh, going to start filming on April 11th. Uh, Zack Snyder mm-hmm. uh, I tweeted a picture today of him uh, in, at Leaves in their building sets over there and there were some costumes in the background you could see Flash's costume uh, very quickly uh, and uh, so that's kind of interesting because recently some big brained internet types in the States namely uh, Drew McGuinney at Hitfix the artist formerly known as Moriarty suggested that Batman v Superman I'm not going to do the whole thing uh might have people at Warner Brothers worried. And if it were to somehow underperform at the box office, it's got Batman and Superman in it. It's going to make all the money in the world. Uh, But if it were to underperform at the box office, Justice League may be pushed back and Zack Snyder may end up not directing the film. Mm. This seems to me that this is uh, heading out of the past and they're kind of going, no, 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 no. We're very confident about this and this is going to happen. What's your take? Well, they've already shot Wonder Woman... Um, it's it'll be pretty much finishing as Justice League starts. So so Gal Gadot will go straight from one to the other. Um, so they have clearly f- confidence in the whole overall scheme of things. Um, and you know, Man of Steel didn't exactly set the world alight, and yet here we are with this ridiculous, with this enormous <laughs> spin-off universe. So maybe they're just pushing through. Do you know how much chicken Jason Momoa has been eating over the last year? <laughs> They have to make this movie. <laughs> well, that's it. Or they'll have one angry Jason Momoa. <laughs> there are no more chickens left. <laughs> Don't let that sacrifice be for naught. Yeah. John, what's your, do, you have a, do you have a thought on this? Nope. Good. <laughs> Should we talk Oscars? Because it's the Oscars this week. Uh, who's excited yes. about the Oscars? Ooh, who doesn't like the Oscars? <laughs> yeah. Right, can Screw you leave for the next time? minutes? Um, so, what's your what's your take on the Oscars? This is pretty much it's all set in stone, isn't it? So I don't know that it is. Okay, I'm just going to be controversial there. Um, yeah, best actor is set in stone, and actually, best actress is set in stone as well. It's Brie Larson, awesome. So, Leo um, DiCaprio is going to win for his portrayal of Man in Puddle. <laughs> You saw, you saw Revenant, right, Chris? Yeah. You did, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, yeah. he was very. <coughs> I got the black lung pop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. It was, it was, I guess, pretty much like that. Um, it's exactly but, like that. It was a direct quote from the film. <laughs> it was a direct quote from a film. <laughs> they, they all blend into one for me after a while. Mm, yeah. Um, 
I think Spotlight's still in with a little bit of a chance. I think The Wind is definitely behind The Revenant for Best Picture. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's not going to win. It might. It very well might. But those Guild Awards have gone to three different films. They've, you know, The Producers Guild went The Big Short, which I, I don't see winning Best Picture. And the SAG Awards went for Spotlight, which I do think is a contender. And then, obviously, Best Director at the, at the DGAs went to The Revenant. But I don't think it's I don't think it's nailed on. It's, you know, we, we we can ignore the Globes; they're irrelevant. The Baftas have something of an overlap of membership, but not entirely the same kind of concerns as the US. So I don't think we can rule out Spotlight. I think it's between one of those two. Bridge of Spies. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's between Making one of those three, run. of course. Yeah. I mean, it should be Mad Max, though, right? We all in agreement. Yes. Yeah? Do you Any know what? Academy it should members be. in here tonight? Yeah. It actually vote? should genuinely be George Miller for it should be. director. Yes. Because, uh, and I think we can all agree on this, any director we have spoken to in the last year has raved about George Miller. Every single director that anyone at Empire has spoken to in the last year has raved about George Miller's work on that film. And if including were, George Miller. Including, <laughs> and if it were just directors voting, I honestly think it would be an open and shut case. Having said that, he didn't win the DGA, so I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confused as well, but anyway. that's just my natural state. I mean, um, everyone, everyone has been talking about how hard The Revenant was to make. Mad Max was way harder to make. They were in a bloody desert for, like, months. <laughs> yeah, Tom Hardy lay down in sand. <laughs> that's way tougher than a puddle. <laughs> sand can get places. You know what I'm saying? That's Couldn't sad. they just have gone to some kind of tiebreak? Like, go to Tom Hardy, ask him which film was harder. <laughs> he should know. Right, which is harder, Tom? Cold or heat? Stop it, (laughs) Tom Hardest. Um, At this point, I'm just saying things. Um, So that I like that idea. Actually, that that could work because I refer you to the one question I gave I put to Tom Hardy when he was on the uh, podcast when I, we were interviewing him for Legend and I said uh, so I hear you're done with The Revenant to which he replied and I think we left it in uh, <laughs> oh I'm so done with The Revenant <laughs> I think that was a, a tough film for him to make but yeah god damn it uh, George Miller deserves the Oscar I'm going to get angry about it um, because if there's one thing Lee's Oscars need it's four white people talking about them <laughs> Uh, but you know, speaking of that, are we looking forward to the ceremony itself? I mean, Chris Rock is going to be the the host. I imagine he will have some things to say. I I think he will, and I I am relishing the thought of that. Um, yeah, it's going to be good, right? There's going to be blood. I think <laughs> there's going to be actual blood. <laughs> actual blood, like all over the stage, it's like gonna be everywhere. Amazing. It's going to be pretty tough. I think it's the, it's a big kind of, you know big topic in everyone's minds. Uh, what is what is Chris Rock going to say? The Academy has obviously taken steps over the last few weeks to address the the issues of diversity within the Academy and the nominations. So that's going to be on the agenda. Obviously, is Leo going to get his long-awaited Oscar? And what's going to win Best Animated Short? Those are the things that are keeping everyone awake at night. Uh, who stays up for the Oscars here? Five people. Six people. Okay. <laughs> Is that because you're insomniacs or do you just like to stay up for the Oscars? Insomnia. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So um, very, very quickly, let's go through you guys. Best Picture winner, Phil. The Revenant. The Revenant. John. I'm saying Spotlight. Spotlight. I'll say Spotlight as well. Spotlight. Okay. Just to be different. Okay, a lot of love for Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 in this, uh, in this table. <laughs> uh, one last thing we're going to talk about because uh, as chance would have it, 
this 200th podcast episode uh, as it enters its fourth hour. Um, uh, it comes out in the same week as the new issue of Empire. Um, yeah, I know. Believe me, it's it's amazing. Uh, so this one, what's on the cover? It's Captain Captain What and his Guys. Civil What. Uh, Captain America: Civil War is on the cover. Uh, this is going to be a very very quick plug. Don't worry, we're just going to go through every single page and talk about it in great detail. Uh, so Captain America: Civil War is on the cover. Who went on set of that movie, Helen O'Hara? I did. It was okay, awesome. Then. <laughs> I got to talk to them all and I sat and watched them film and somebody carried the shield past me and I sort of reached toward it like, ah, and then they didn't bring it back. For, Did they know you were there? Well, I mean, I mean, possibly not. Okay. But because the air vent was really comfortable. Okay. I'm just saying because I, I've seen the terms and conditions of your restraining order from Chris Evans and I know that stringent. 50, 50 are very stringent. <laughs> Uh, it I'm, rules out disguises as well, which is really it's it's, a real tough. It's tough it's, one. Pr- it's pretty strict, but, so it, but no, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, uh, they talked a lot around things, but I feel like if you read the feature carefully, there's probably stuff you can figure out. Uh, there was a whacking great spoiler in there, which um, <laughs> I took out because <laughs> I didn't think any of you would forgive me. Um, but they they talked what a bit about well, they talked. I'm not going to tell you now. They talked okay. a bit about Infinity War, and they talked a bit about writing a particular character in Infinity War and what sort of role that particular character would have in Infinity War and I thought um. if you extrapolating backwards like that tells you a lot about how that that person is going to end up in Civil War so I just I can't do it and May you know and it and May will be in Infinity War you part know it. one amazing Marissa just Tomei Marissa Tomei on her own <laughs> I'd watch that film Marissa Tomei in a puddle <laughs> Give her all the Oscars. Of, never mind. That'd be amazing. Uh, what else is in the issues? He talked to Chadwick Boseman as well. We have yep. a feature on Pee Wee Herman, who is back in a new Netflix movie, and we were on set of that, and we talked to Paul Rubens, and uh, that's a wonderful feature as well. John Favreau talking about The Jungle Book. Uh, Jeff Nichols talking about his new film, Midnight Special. I wrote a piece, uh, but don't let that uh, <laughs> you know, taint your view of it. Uh, on John Bernthal as The Punisher, I went and set of Daredevil Season 2. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're not the only one who can go with superhero stuff. Yeah, right. uh, so I went and said that. That's quite um, short. Uh, so there's a, a feature on a guy called Dennis Woodruff, who is a struggling actor who... Where's Dan Jolin? Is he still here? Yeah, he, went. Dan, he went for his banana. Dan Jolin is the features editor of Empire, and he can perhaps explain this better than I can. Uh, but it's something, he's basically Hollywood's greatest failure. He's, a, he's a, a guy who's been trying to get into movies for years. He makes his own truly dreadful movies. He's an eccentric, a one-off. It's a very, very fun feature of The Great Photo Shoot. Check that one out. Uh, there's a lovely piece on the late, great David Bowie from Julian Temple, who worked with him, of course, on Absolute Beginners. Uh, there is a piece on House of Cards with uh, Kevin Spacey. Hello. Uh, and then there is uh, Helen Mirren, the, the Clash of the Helens. Yes, it's like the Clash of the Titans, but less <laughs> shit. I hope. Um, which one? Which one? The, which the one? remake. God. Okay. Oh, okay. Like All right. Of course. Uh, but no, she was a delight. I was terrified of interviewing her. There's a bit in there, we put it in the intro, but I, I I had read that she's quite. She's not critical of people, but she makes helpful comments if people come in and they look a bit slovenly, um, you know, and, and she'll sort of note that, oh, those shoes are a bit big on you or whatever. Um, so I was absolutely terrified because I'm not a neat person in terms of, you know, <laughs> looking all kempt. And, um, and so I was literally polishing my shoes and ironing my shirt and everything before I went in to, to interview her. Uh-huh, and, that- and I didn't need to worry because she was a delight. 
Okay. Was awesome. She was wearing baggy combats. No, she was in she was in like fabulous, like amazing blue dress. Like amazing. Do you love her? I do love her. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I love um, Helen Mirren. You love Helen Mirren? Yeah, I'm waiting for the, the age she reaches when I stop fancying her, but I, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I, I fancied her all of my life, and I continue to. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not ashamed. Don't laugh at me. That feels like a dark thread from you, John, in a, in a, in a weird way. It's true. I'll never stop fancying you, Helen Mirren. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you're 102 or just a pile of bones in a box. In fact, that would probably improve my chances. But anyway, moving on seamlessly. Right, what else is in the issue? We've got loads of stuff. We've got uh, a great uh, shot of uh, London being destroyed in uh, Independence Day resurgence. Uh, and that's terrifying. Because, quite frankly, the Prince Charles cinema would be fucked, and we would all be as well. There's uh, Ooh, I can see my house too. from here. Yeah, it's being consumed in a fireball. Um, uh, we have a piece where we rank the hateful eight in order of hatefulness. Um, there's massive spoilers in that one, so please don't read that if you haven't seen The Hateful Eight. Uh, there's a piece on the Huntsman Winter's Wards, all very, very exciting. The new uh, uh, Will Arnett uh, Netflix comedy flaked. Uh, this month's Pint of Milk is. I've forgotten it, even though I probably did it myself. Uh, no, I did, Natalie Dormer. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and there's uh, a, an exclusive interview with Paddy Considine, who was our very first guest in the very first podcast, way, way back years ago when I had hair. And... Um, and he's talking about his new movie, uh, Journeyman, which is, if anyone saw Tyrannosaur here, did anyone see Tyrannosaur here? Okay, if you haven't seen Tyrannosaur, it's one of the great British movies of the last 10, 15 years. Absolutely phenomenal. Paddy Constantine, one of the great actors of our generation, also happens to be one of the great directors of our generation. It's taken him in ages to uh, get back behind the camera. He's doing it now with a boxing movie, but it's not a boxing movie, uh, called Journeyman. So do check that one out. And on there as well, uh, we have uh, a nice piece about Laurie Rose, who is Ben Wheatley's DP. He's about to be Paddy's DP as well on Journeyman. And uh, what he does on his... on their movies every week is he makes badges for the cast and the crew and he hands them out uh, so we have some of the best badges there but anyway I'm rambling about the issue because the best thing in the issue is the fulfilment of something I've wanted to do for 10 to 12 years now people on who may have heard recently on the podcast that we had an A-list agony uncle uh, in the uh, in the offing it actually happened so about 10 12 years ago I was re-watching Zoolander I can't quite remember why, just because I was probably low and depressed and, and close to ending it all. And um, Sulander really helped me not to do that. Um, at one point, Billy Zane comes on. And Owen Wilson says, listen to your friend Billy Zane. He's a cool dude. He's trying to help you. And a little light went off my head. I said, wouldn't it be awesome if we had an agony uncle column where Billy Zane tackled real problems from readers? And it happened! <laughs> It actually happened! Listen to your friend, Billy Zane! It's in the magazine. It is amazing. Real, genuine problems from readers that Billy took the time to tackle in his inimitable manner. And uh, this is going to happen, we hope, on an ongoing basis. I, I can die happy now. That's amazing. So that is just £4.50 in all good and evil news agents. Do pick it up if you can. And that is it. Shameless plug over. Wow. 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 Okay, it's time now for our first guest. Uh, when we were discussing potential guests for our 200th podcast, we knew one thing. We didn't want 
flavours of the month, here to plug their latest wares in robotic fashion, but not, of course, robotic Winchester fashion, that would be weird. Uh, We wanted people that we loved, we wanted friends of the mag and of the podcast, who didn't even necessarily have anything to plug. Uh, We wanted someone, for example, who is one of Britain's finest actors, we wanted someone who's worked with everyone from Michael Bay to Paul Greengrass to Ridley Scott to Harry frickin' Potter, Uh, and ideally, personally, I wanted someone who's been in Event Horizon. Um, we found such a person and in doing so I think we're about to coin a catchphrase that may prove to be pretty damn popular so please join me in saying why hello it's Jason Isaacs Jason Isaacs. I didn't see. A, I couldn't see a close-up of who was sitting here before. But did they seem to have any cold sores? Just, I'm going to drink this water. That's it. Uh, how are you, sir? They will have now. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you did get a sneaky kiss in there when you we, we embraced. It's quite a powerful brace, actually. How are you? Embracing. It's very good for the radio, isn't it? Um, can you call podcasting radio? You can. Yeah, it's audio. How am I? I'm, I'm good. I just had that experience. There's a strange thing that happens to actors. Obviously, there's when the things, the jobs that you do when they come out and they do well or they do badly. And then there's the jobs that you pass on. Mm-hmm. You say, it's not for me. I don't really fancy it. I can't go away or, you know, I don't like it or whatever. And then you see it announced with someone much more successful and famous who's <laughs> taken the job. I just saw that online that someone much just in every way, just more <laughs> than me. Uh, has taken a job I turned down and now I'm feeling terribly regretful. I've made a terrible, no. terrible mistake. Well, You've got only one in a long line of billions, but there we are. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what it is because that is career suicide. <laughs> <laughs> is it news that's come out today? Because we can figure this stuff out. It's, you know, it's something. Uh, it's something that's about like sift through the four billion pieces of showbiz news that came out today, yeah. A process yeah. of elimination. I have that in common, by the way, with many of my friends and contemporaries that, that uh, the most successful career is the one that you didn't do, the jobs that you thought were really <laughs> shitty and that no one would ever watch that you then see going by on the side of buses all the time. Yeah. I read that your, your, your wife encouraged you to do case histories up in Edinburgh. She uh, did. Uh, is yeah. there anything that you've done that she wasn't keen on you doing? Or Almost anything, anything that involves me leaving the house, yeah. <laughs> so she doesn't... <laughs> Yeah, uh, she liked cases because she loved the book. In fact, it wasn't so much that she liked the shows. When she saw the first series uh, and that I had starved myself and gone to the gym all day, every day, and was, had an unrecognisable body from the slightly pudgy person she'd been with for many years, uh, she then encouraged me to do the second one in the hope that that would happen again. But I kept my clothes on in the second one mostly. So she was very disappointed. But she watched it with her mum and grandma, and also she got a lot more brownie points at the school gates from the other school mums, who went, I never knew Jason looked like that with his shirt off. And she went, he fucking doesn't most of the time. <laughs> you can swear on a podcast, can't you? Yeah. You can absolutely swear on the podcast. I've, I've dropped can I just swear for no reason at all? Just say, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> we encourage it. Pretend I'm in a Richard yeah. Curtis film. Right, Basically, the whole thing's funded by a swear jar, so thanks Marvelous. for the, uh, the five pounds you've just given us. <laughs> that, that is lovely. Um, I said in the intro that uh, we wanted someone who doesn't really have anything to plug. But that's, I don't, that's, I've got some stuff. There's always some stuff. There's always some somewhere. stuff. The stuff that's genuinely coming out that I've made relatively recently that will be out that, that uh, may or may not be good. When it comes out, I'll tell you it's brilliant. But right now, at some distance, <laughs> some of it's all right. Some of it might be not. And then the stuff that you made some time ago that's probably never going to come out that you have to pretend is coming out and then occasionally just comes out and, and some, you know, someone sends you an email. You see it on Twitter and you go, shit, that came out. <laughs> I was hoping no one would see it. 
<laughs> is there anything like that at the moment? Or <laughs> no, there's a very good film I made uh, a few years ago that just came out called Dawn. There's also a film uh, which I loved I made in Rio called Rio I Love You mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. It was one of those uh, anthology films. I don't know if you ever saw New York I Love You and Paris I Love You. Uh, they made a Rio I Love You. Uh, guess what it's about? And um, <laughs> Rio it's all these, yeah, it's all these love letters to Rio with fantastic directors in it. Guillermo del Toro, uh, not Guillermo, sorry, Guillermo Aliaga did one, okay. and yeah. Fernando Moraes did one, and all these first different people. Actors came from all over the world and did it. And they sat on it until the year of the Olympics. And so uh, ah. it's come out this year, and it was uh, that just came out on DVD. But there's 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 stuff coming out, you know. <laughs> I'm not here to I love Empire. The truth is, I I read Empire before I was. Oh, not before I was an actor. What, what was the year was the first issue? 1989. Okay, so I'd just come out of drama school, but I read it right yeah. from the beginning because I'm a fan. I love films and I love telly. Uh, good stuff, anyway. And um, I thought it was a real... Not only was, is the magazine written by and for people who love film, but the award show, which I've been to many times as well, it just doesn't have its head up its own ass and uh, <laughs> is about having uh, a, you know enormously good fun night, celebrating things that are genuinely popular uh, and not letting people make twats themselves on stage, which has happened <laughs> once or twice, and everybody else gets up and makes fun of them, which is what they deserve. Well, thank you very much, Lee, for the kind words. Here's five pounds. Thanks very much. <laughs> you, know, you know I'll take it. That's going straight on a pork <laughs> xiaolongbao outside, because it's very hard to get soup dumplings uh, around where I live. <laughs> is it, you, so you, um, you came out of drama school in 1989, and you, that was when you appeared in The Tall Guy, wasn't it? Fuck, we're doing the whole like behind the actor studio thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yes, in ninety, we're going through every year. No, no, like, not every year. A bit hazy. In yes, ninety-one. I, I was in the tall guy. Uh, that was my first day, uh, almost my first day on a film. Uh, actually, no, I, <laughs> no, I can't. I think he might not be dead yet. I'll wait till someone's dead. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, different story. Uh, tall guy, yeah. <laughs> Well, it was my first down of film, and uh, lovely Mel Smith, who is tragically dead, was directing it. And I, I came to the set, and I was playing Surgeon 2, or Doctor 2, I think it's known as in was the credits. Was that a surname, or was that his number? No, that's just the generic type okay. that I was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a Doctor 1 bastard. And uh, <laughs> I w- got there, and the first thing they did was they put on my costume, which is a surgeon uh, thing with a hat and a, a frog, and a mask covered my face. And I went, fuck, you're kidding me. It's my first part. <laughs> and there was Jeff Goldblum, who I met recently and recounted this story to. He had no memory in <laughs> wanted me to stop talking immediately but anyway uh, he lay down flat and the camera was on me it was a part of a nightmare sequence where he's uh, having a nightmare about not having the balls to approach Emma Thompson to flirt with her and uh, I, the various doctors in this nightmare are looking inside his, his body and going spine kidney spleen there's no heart there's no heart. There's no heart. No, no, no heart. No balls. What is it? Something. Well, something about no courage. I think. I think there's no heart. And uh, anyway, I had these three three lines: spleen, kidney, no spine. That's what it was. No spine. And Mel Smith came up to me in full manic mode. It was you know already eight o'clock and they were an hour and a half behind or something. He said, "Listen, we're coming on a dolly, right? We're coming on a track. But what we're going to do is going to zoom to get an extra bit of push. So I need you to start your look. If you start your look somewhere at the top of the jib and then end it just inside, just inside the mat box." I thought, what the fuck is he talking about? I have no idea what, what any of those words mean in any order. And uh, so I stood there, just panic, sweat, like fountaining out of my eyes. And the camera's just on me. So Jeff Goldblum is out of sight entirely. Just as the camera reaches my face, he sits up through it. And then in the eventual film, you cut to a face-on view of him where he says, that's right, I have no spine. Oh, God. So anyway, he's out of shot. I'm just about to go. They're going, uh, roll cameras, and we're rolling, and uh, Jeff Goldman goes, hold on a second, hold on, hold on. And he gets up, and he's in his undies, and he runs around, he stands on a chair, he starts reciting love poetry. <laughs> he's not in the frame, he's not in the shot. He is a, a shape that will wipe through it, and then they'll cut, and they'll reset. 
And I think, what the fuck is good? Where's Jeremy Beadle? What's happening? I don't understand. And uh, anyway, we did the scene. I was mightily confused, left before the free lunch. And, um, and my then girlfriend, now wife, was also in the tall guy. Both first jobs out of drama school. And she shot a whole sequence with an elephant real elephant at the zoo was meant to spray water it's to, pr- it's to promote Elephant Man the musical that he's yeah. in and we were offered uh, £25 a head tickets to the premiere for charity which was a big deal for us uh, in those days and um, it might be again soon who knows but anyway so <laughs> there we were sitting just on the, in Leicester Square and my bit came up and there you could see you know at least one of my eyeballs on screen for four or five frames and I'm like it's me it's me because you couldn't tell unless I pointed it out and then she leant over she squeezed my hand and she went I'm not in it I've been cut I said, no, no, I'm sure they've just... Uh, she goes, no, it definitely came before this bit. And I said, no, I'm sure that they edit, they rearrange scenes. She went, the musical's fucking open, all right, on the film. <laughs> They're not going to show the bit where he's promoting it. And I went, oh, God. And she went, I want to go home. And I went, no, no, we can't go home. We pay £25. <laughs> We've got to mix with people and stuff. Um, that was the first of many arguments about which <laughs> showbiz parties we should go to. I think we went home, to be fair. That's why we're married. Amazing. Amazing. Was that an hour, that story? Is so that a whole podcast? That's... Sorry. <laughs> That was 1989. <laughs> 1990. Yes, I remember it well. Actually, one of the first things I did was a, a play, Angels in America, just a couple of years later, and I see they're doing it again with Andrew Garfield. And I remember doing it thinking, this is the best thing I will ever have done in my life. It's the best writing I'd ever come across. Yeah. I can't wait to be old enough to play the part of Roy Cohn, which is the part that Al Pacino played in the uh, HBO screen adaptation of it. And I am now old enough to do that, and I thought about phoning up and saying, can I can I come back and do that? Uh-huh. And then I thought, I'd just hate Andrew Garfield and the other young people <laughs> for playing my part and constantly be wanting to go, uh, sorry, I hope you don't mind me saying, if you, just a suggestion, you might want to... Anyway, so, <laughs> that's what I remember about 1990 or 1991. But the, the hatred of Andrew Garfield would stem just from that, right? That he, no, he's yeah. gorgeous. He's one, my, yeah. my kids just discovered uh, Spider-Man. I've got a 13 and 10-year-old girl and they just discovered and fell in love with uh, Andrew Spider-Man and the amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, with a Welsh villain which I love uh, and, uh, and I said let me show you the Tobey Maguire film let me show you the other version it's just a yeah. few years before and I don't watch an old film is it black and white and I said no it's not it's, not. it's just a few years before no, don't want, we hate old films dad there's a new one the new Spider-Man coming up right now there is indeed yeah with Tom Holland he made this year fantastic coming up all superheroes should be English as we know yeah. Henry Cavill and Tom Holland which superhero would you want to play uh, well, I like Daredevil, but it's now being played by another great English actor, Charlie yes. Cox. Daredevil, I always like. I, I don't like the ones with all the powers. It's not, you know, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't take much effort to have a superpower yeah. and just exercise it. But if you build, if you're blind and you teach yourself with two sticks, as I tried to do when I was ten and I used to read it, um, with less success than Daredevil has, you know, <laughs> and more breakages, uh, that's kind of impressive, I think. So you'd be like Plumber Man. Yeah, yeah I would exactly. Yeah. Fork Man. What was the film they made a film? Cutlery, no, it was Ben Stiller was in it. There was yes. a fork guy. Yeah. Mystery, Mystery Man, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hank Azaria played the Blue Raja. Yeah. There was flung a, forks. There was a series when I was uh, a kid. Probably was black and white. I don't know, but there was a there were two psychic <laughs> people in it. Uh, or the three psychic Alexander Bastida was in it. And, and uh, the champions it was called. And there there was psychic, part of the sequence. Is that right? Oh, some old people in the audience. There we go. Take it take it easy anyway out the stairs. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we, uh, my best friend at school and I, decided that we were also psychic. I mean, a little sign in those days, we would flick our uh, slightly longer fringes, and that meant we were talking. We never discussed what it was we were saying to each other, just in case it didn't tally. But that most of the school assembly was us being psychic with each other. Do you want to try it now? Uh, I've been doing it for a while. I can see. <laughs> I mean, you're 11.30 outside. <laughs> um, so um, your, your children, have they seen Event Horizon yet? 
My children, they're not into horror. I, you know, I, what's weird is I was so into horror when I was a kid. I still like horror films. And they really work on me. I absolutely shit myself. And I, I, saw, I remember seeing The Conjuring not that long ago in, a, in the Four Seasons, I think, in Los Angeles, and sleeping genuinely with the lights on in the hotel. <laughs> At the end, I did that thing that I was always fooled by when I was a kid. I'm still fooled by now I'm old, which is saying this is based on a, a true story. But now you can go to the internet and you can check. And you can see that couple from The Conjuring. You can see them and their you know, yeah. psychic adventures. That scared the pants of me. And the other one recently was The Babadook. I thought mm. was just a work of genius. Yeah, I just thought it was a fantastic. I thought if that wasn't horror, if it wasn't genre, she is her name. Essie Davis was her name. Yes, that's right. She, she would have been up for every award in the world. Just a brilliant performance. Yeah. But no, my kids are not yet uh, into horror. If they see the film I made last year, I made a film last year with Gore Verbinski um, called, at the moment, called A Cure for Wellness. Oh. Trips off the tongue, <laughs> and uh, in which uh, I do some things that if my children ever see it, they will no longer be probably legally my children. I suspect they will, they will emancipate themselves. Interesting. Okay. I've got a very random question. Go for uh, it. Jason, you're friends with Roland Emmerich. I am. He's my children's godfather, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. From, obviously from the Patriot and yeah. since. Yeah. Have you been to his house in London? I'm I have been to his house in London. Place. Yeah, yeah. He's got, he's got a pope under the Anybody under the else stairs. in the crowd been to Roland's house in London? Just, he's got a pope in a, yeah, on the toilet in a, in, under the stairs, yeah. Well, because he bought a house in a, in a very conservative... <laughs> he bought a house in a very conservative area, and he's a fantastically interesting and creative guy, and he didn't want to be like his neighbours or, or be, you know... So he hired this very maverick, slightly insane interior designer and went, go batshit. And so you walk in the room, you walk in there and you go... There's like giant prints of Chernobyl on the wall, and there's kind of uh, all kinds of crazy shit, so that you would never, for a second, think you know you had strolled into the neighbor's house. Yeah. <laughs> so this Pope under the stairs. Yeah. What? Drawing together is a theme. Let's see the neatest segue into the next film story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just fascinated by that. Can you hear the Pope screaming at night? Is He's a really interesting guy, wrong You know, it's funny. You, yeah, I, uh, I'm, a, I read celebrity gossip like anybody else. I love all the stuff about. Uh, about anybody who's in or, or uh, in the public eye. And yet when you meet and get to know people, of course they can never be summed up or represented by any of the things you read about them. So obviously yeah. I work with Mel Gibson as well, about whom it's easy to be uh, funny and go for cheap punchlines and stuff. But when you get to know him, he is, like all of us, just a massively complicated individual. He's not a, you know, he's not a public figure, he's a bloke uh, with uh, a million contradictory personalities, depending on how he is that day or what he's drunk or what, mm. what somebody behaves. <laughs> no, it's true. Or who, how someone is behaving. Uh, as him, Roland is thought of as this giant, sci-fi director and he's got Independence Day 2 coming out uh, yeah. this summer which I'm sure will be gigantic but he's also one of the best read people I've ever met and devours non-fiction at a rate of a, a book a day it's, it's wow. intimidating to bring things up around so when he made um, oh god the day after tomorrow the film about the superstorm you couldn't walk in his house for weighty texts about that stuff and, and that film as much as it he might have made it into a popcorn story uh, was then on the agenda and syllabus at various different schools around the world and became part of the Green Movement. I went to something, met Gorbachev with him because it was used to kind of preach uh, eco-consciousness. And so th- there's a whole other side to the popcorn version of him that people don't know. And that, that's true of you know, anybody that we all swap headlines about and think we know. Wow. That's, very dep- <laughs> Sorry. that's brought you down a bit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I've got a knob guy. It's percolating. <laughs> Give me a second. And there it is. Um, <laughs> so, so not not to bring things back to Event Horizon just no, no, do it. five seconds but one of my favourite films can I say we started favorite. making Event Horizon yeah Pinewood Studio uh, and uh, we went in there we did read throughs and you know we, we shot it it was cut we went to America and it was released uh, in fact the same time we started making Event Horizon Stanley Kubrick started making uh, Eyes Wide Shut 
and I had a mate in it, mm-hmm. uh, Alan Cumming, who was in it. Anyway, so we start making Event Horizon, and it and it, it is fully post-produced, and it's released, and then we go, the same team of people, the director uh, and me and Sean Pert, we all go to America, we decamp to Los Angeles, we start making Soldier, mm-hmm. uh, which has not quite lived in uh, infamy in the same way as Event Horizon, but nonetheless, we all got paid. Um, so... <laughs> We're there making that film with Kurt Russell, and it is shot, and it's quite a big summer. You know, it takes a long time to shoot. It's a big special effects heavy thing, and it's cut, and it's released, and, uh, you know, to very little <laughs> claim. And, uh, but whatever, we have that experience, and we come back to England, and I, I have some months off and lick my wounds, you all lick our wounds, and I get a job in End of the Affair, and I go to Pinewood Studios, and Stanley Kubrick is still fucking making <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut. It's unbelievable. Amazing. It was like that's that's the difference time between the two the two recent Spider Man. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like three years later, unbelievable. Uh, did you speak to Alan coming during this this time? What was what were his uh, thought processes like? He was having a good time. They're all yeah. having a good time. Alan is one is an extraordinary person uh, because wherever he goes, the world revolves around him. So he has this small part in Eyes Wide Shut, and within five minutes, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are going, "What are you doing tonight, Alan? Where are you going? Can we come?" <laughs> it's just one. Of those, it's just one of those dudes. I was at. I was at a New Year's Eve party of his in New York when he was, you know, not, he's kind of globally famous now, particularly in New York. He's like, a, you know, they're going to replace the Statue of Liberty with the Statue of Allen. I think he's so <laughs> famous there. But, um, so years and years ago, I was at a New Year's Eve party, strobe lights and a lot of people and stuff. And then, I don't know, 14 years later or 15 years later, uh, I went to the Mission Impossible 2 premiere in Los Angeles with uh, Tandy Newton, who is married to my best friend so uh, so we go to this thing and we're at it and she goes oh do you want to say hi to Tom Cruise and I went no <laughs> it's just that's just weird at these parties there's like a hundred thousand people queuing to see him at a table or going to line up and go, there's gotta, it's like Mecca the people are going to milling towards him and milling away from him and you get close and you know and he go hey how are you nice to meet you and you move on so uh, she's no no come on I said it's just a it's just humiliating this come on she grabs me uh, and, and pushes through the crowd excuse me I'm in the film excuse me I'm in the film here and wash all those people and she she gets to the front she goes hey Tom and she goes this is it. and he goes Jason Isaacs I met you at Alan Cummings New Year's Eve party 14 years ago you had a blonde girlfriend is it Anna and I go <laughs> Emma I go, it's, it's Emma I'm married to her hey how is she and I go yeah good yeah, thanks a lot <laughs> and I move on and I go what the fuck just happened there that is one of the reasons he's Tom Cruise because believe me I, he doesn't know me from any work or anything he just knows everyone he's ever met and their girlfriend what shoes they were wearing what time of day it was <laughs> it was a room with a strobe on it and he was there for 10 minutes anyway there we are. that's amazing I don't know how we got there from did he have Horizon a guy or... with an earpiece going this is uh, Jason Isaacs no Jason that's not the point yeah. I, there was nobody it was wow. him the, yeah that's I know amazing. that he, when he made the film he made a film here for two years uh, Edge of Tomorrow mm-hmm. I know that when he met the director he went how do you think, what do you think about uh, working like seven days a week and Doug went, <laughs> and he went, no, really. We think they're working seven days a week. And they worked on, on, with rotating crews. They worked seven days a week. Wow. For two years. And occasionally they have a Sunday off because someone needed like a spine transplant or something. But like, like, they just, they just were, he's unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Phenomenal. D- um, he should be one of the biggest stars in the world. He should be. I, think, I believe he is. Not tallest, obviously. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, has everyone heard of Tom Cruise? In case you don't know who we're talking about. <laughs> Little fella that stars in movies. Uh, right. So, uh, if you want to ask Jason anything, not anything. Come but, on, get me to, uh, get me to up, slander, defame someone. And we have roving microphones going around. <laughs> yes, give him a chance. Uh, yes, right at the back. So, when I was really young, I saw you in Peter Pan, uh, which was obviously like a big thing for my childhood. I haven't seen it in years. Um, but I was wondering if you saw the recent Pan and what you thought of Garrett Hedlund in that and how that sort of relates to you because you were obviously Captain Hook in the 2003 Peter Pan. Um, 
Well, first of all, thanks for making me feel really fucking old. Um, <laughs> uh, I, that might be the favourite film of mine I've ever made. I, I think it was a, just a beautiful, beautiful film. And it came out and tanked at the box office uh, opposite Lord of the Rings. So they thought they had the family market sewn up and they just didn't. And, but subsequently, it's had this massive life because it's just a beautifully made film. And PJ Hogan, it, it went famously very... A lot over budget and a lot over schedule. But I thought that's because he went uh, insane in all the right ways. I mean, it just became, you know, it became a labor of love. And, and it turns out every frame of the thing is stunning. And all the people who worked on it were, the year before, nominated for Oscars for Moulin Rouge and stuff. And, uh, and they deserved it just as much for Peter Pan. But um, I have seen the other pans. And uh, obviously there was Hook before we did it. And subsequently there'd been Pan. And I'm thrilled to say that all of them flopped. Uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> Because I thought what PJ and the studios who backed it did was make the only genuine version of the beautiful and brilliant and profound book that J.M. Barry wrote and play that he wrote, which is about a little girl. It's not about a boy at all. It's about a little girl hitting puberty, being told, you were a kid yesterday, tomorrow, get ready to be a woman, get ready to have children, get ready to be fucked, get ready to be, uh, have, a, you know, have a husband. That's what it was in those days, in the, in the days that the book was written. Get ready to be you know, the mother in a family and getting completely freaked out by it. And as someone with a teenage girl who's watched her on the cusp go, wait, but I still want to sleep with my teddy bear, and why is everyone expecting me to behave or look and understand things as a woman? I get how profoundly important uh, and powerful that message is. And so that night she goes to bed and she dreams of a world where she doesn't have to grow up. She's got a friend who's still got his baby teeth and who can, she can play with, like a little boy and a little girl. And there is a man who's kind of like a, a sexual predator but seems very attractive but is also repulsive. And, and he looks just like the only man she knows, her dad. So I think it's a really powerful Freudian story. And um, people along the way get completely, you know, the, the Disney version and uh, um, Spielberg's version and the recent version get completely distracted by the fact that there's a boy in it. Uh, and it's not about the boy at all, it's about the girl. It's a woman's story, it's very much about girls and women. And I thought, yeah, PJ made a beautiful version. So one of the reasons I thought, I mean, they were great in it. Uh, all the actors were great, and the special effects were great, and Joe Wright's a wonderful director, but it didn't work, because the original story is what works. That, you know, that's the power of it, and uh, people are uh, a bit scared of it, I think. So, uh, you know, but good luck to the next person who tries. <laughs> Is that a movie that you think has uh, had a, a second life? The it has. No, no, I meet so many people. Well, it, <laughs> I meet people who go, I loved it. I just went to a Harry Potter convention in Paris, uh, which was, uh, it's, it wasn't one of the big Comic-Con conventions that I go to sometimes, but uh, it was just people who love Harry Potter, and it was just women, essentially, between 14 and 40, and it was, you know, uh, it was an experience. But anyway... <laughs> But m almost all of them came up to me and when no one else was listening, went, the film I really loved is Peter Pan. It was meant so much to me. And it, because it really speaks to women a lot. So uh, I get, sometimes people say they've loved it. Quite often I get men coming up and going, who comes to talk about Peter Pan, aren't you? And I go, yeah. And I go, I'm so fucking sick of that film. <laughs> <laughs> I just die kids. I've been on all that fucking time. So I get a lot of, there's a lot of people who play it on a loop. Uh, so depending on whether they're the watcher or the, the supervisor, I get uh, different reactions here. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, any other questions for Jason? Yes, please, right here in the fourth row. Hi, Jason. Hi. Whoa, Whoa that's loud. Whoa. <laughs> I've been to church recently. Sorry, go on. Um, you actually did a vo some voiceover for a, a game called Castlevania Lord of Shadows. Uh, alongside... Okay. Alongside Pat... <laughs> I can't... That's, yes, I remember it well. Yeah. Uh, alongside Patrick Stewart. And uh, I was just wondering what you... Uh, thought about that experience and if you'd consider doing it again 
some point. I do love doing voice work, uh, partly because you can get out of bed late and there's no makeup, and it doesn't matter if you, you know, your eyes are stuck together and you have got cold sores. But uh, also, I like it because you don't. It's a bit like being at drama school. You don't get cast for what you look like. You can play anything. I've played Satan, and I played little. Actually, I was in a series called uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender for a few seasons in America. Big thumbs up at the front. Thank you. Um, and uh, and I went in there to the studio in Los Angeles uh, when I lived there and uh, I said hold on a second I think I've got the wrong place I came outside I said to the producer sorry I was looking for Avatar they went yeah yeah this is Avatar and I went sorry I'm, 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 I'm the only non-Chinese person in there he went yeah yeah that's cool anyway I said I'm the only non-Asian you don't want an Asian accent he went no like Asian-y and I went <laughs> I said you know I don't, I don't think I can do that uh, but nonetheless, I have uh, one of the things I really love about adverts, video games, not so much documentaries. I just recently did an animated movie uh, here called Happy Families. Is you can play anything and you can look like anything on screen. I, in fact, I did, I'm in Star Wars Rebels as well as uh, um, the Inquisitor. I think his name is. Uh, and I just like going in. I've always liked doing funny voices and silly voices, and you know, you can't normally do them on camera. I mean, in the Potters, I did a very silly voice, but but mostly, although I like accents, you can't. You get much broader range, a bigger canvas uh, with video games. And so yeah, I do, I love doing that stuff. And I'm, In fact, I was the voice of one of my proudest posts, so it went, the very last incarnation of the PG Tips adverts where they were abusing chimpanzees, <laughs> I was three of the five chimps, which, which, which put me in a, you know, in a closed membership category with uh, Kenny Williams and uh, John Cleese and all these people, which is fabulous. So yeah, I, I, I love all that stuff. Do you remember any of your PG Tips dialogue? I don't. I do remember. I've done lots of voiceovers over the years. And one of the odd things has been I've been away somewhere filming. The things I love to do, you know, somewhere in a caravan, getting to, you know, walk in other people's shoes and tell interesting stories. And then I'll listen to the radio and there'll be somebody. Uh, for a while, I was the voice of Snickers, for instance. I remember that line going, Snickers really satisfies. There was a big discussion about whether we should go for the D. Like, Snickers really satisfies. You know, that kind of, like Paul Nicholas, or, or to say, satisfies. Huge hours of it. Um, but I heard someone else do Snickers, and I remember going, oh, my God. Crushed. Crushed. <laughs> when somebody else does a voiceover I've done, uh, it's upsetting. So uh, I, I've always loved doing video games and, and uh, voiceovers. And I even love doing ads. I go in there, and I take, insanely, I get obsessed about getting them right and making them interesting and making them 3.4 seconds instead of 3.6. I just, uh, I like all that stuff. Should we have uh, time for one last question then for Jason? Yes, please, right here in the third row. Thank you. No pressure. It better be really fucking good and interesting. <laughs> and give me an opportunity to sum things up in a... It's a bit of a event horizon. Aristotelian way. It is about her event horizon. Yes! Which is one of my genuinely favourite science fiction films, which mm. is... So it's something else, not that one, obviously. <laughs> and has given me nightmares. And I just wondered what films you saw or how you prepared for that role. Oh, wow. He's not, he's not a plant. I actually genuinely chose this guy. This is, this is, this is kind of amazing. Well, okay. Well, the thing is... Uh, it, what was really odd about Event Horizon, there were two sets on it, very, very clearly. It was the Event Horizon, and there was the Lewis and Clark, which is the, play, the ship that they arrived on. And then there was this cathedral, gothic cathedral of evil that was the Event Horizon. And it was dark and disgusting, and they stuck things on the wall that began to rot. Uh, and there was just a much friendlier place to be on where all the happy scenes took place. And there was this dark, increasingly smelly and nasty place we went to where everybody had to be crying or shouting or screaming at each other. There was a lot of tension. Um, and so, uh, I know it sounds ridiculous, but very often, the, the, there's three things that make it easy for you. 
uh, as an actor, you know, that make, make the act of imagining yourself somewhere easy. One is when the script is great, and the script was great. Uh, the second thing is when the other actors are fabulous, and you look at them, you don't need to suspend your imagined disbelief. You just, you know, you're reacting more than acting. And the other is when the environment is is fully realised, and it was a full ship. It wasn't. And the same thing happened actually in Harry Potter. Pretty much every set, apart from one I can think of, was built. So you didn't have to walk into the Ministry of Magic and go, like, you know, talk about Roland Emmerich. Roland made that film anonymous uh, mm-hmm. with Reese about Shakespeare. Well, that was all green screen. There were captures of, um, of, his, of country houses, and they shot in Germany in a green box. And if you remember Liam Neeson pretending he was going to retire after his lot of Star Wars films, it was because they'd all just shot in a green box for a long yeah. time. But on the Inventor Rice and on Harry Potter, all the sets were built, and the actors were fantastic, and the script was great, and so... We don't have to do anything. The times of my life, are the best films I've been in and the things that I've received the most praise for have been the easiest because everything just worked. The ley lines just met and, and something worked on the day. The other thing that happened in Event Horizon is, if you, I don't know if you've got the Blu-ray where you can go frame by frame, is that, that when it flashed to where the ship had gone in hell, that was a second unit shoot on a different stage. That amputees and porn stars and I don't know what that all... Some <laughs> back in there, just awful shit going on on that set. <laughs> and the director's best friend was over there would come back every few hours with a kind of thousand-yard stare going, you will never fucking believe what I've just seen. We weren't allowed to see it, but as far as we were aware, people were having sex with, you know, bleeding amputated stumps and eyeball sockets and stuff like that. And uh, that contributed to the mood, generally, of... uh, And on that lovely note, maybe I should... <laughs> on that lovely image, maybe I should leave you. Indeed. Thank you so much. And uh, let's all join in the new catchphrase, Why Goodbye, it's Jason Isaacs! Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Jason Isaacs, everybody. And yes, he took my goddamn fiver. He spent it. <laughs> I'll claim that one back. <laughs> okay. Uh, our second and final guest tonight is also a person we love. He's a friend of the mag and the pod. But as chance would have it, he does have something to promote. He's one of Britain's finest directors, someone who's worked with everyone from Tom Hiddleston to Brie Larson to Michael Smiley. But not as far as I can tell, Harry Potter. Uh, and I'm not sure how he feels about Event Horizon, maybe... Dan and Helen will ask him. Uh, but never mind that. Please put your hands together for the amazing director of Down Terrace, Kill List, Sightseers, A Field in England, and now High Rise, Ben Wheatley! Wow, thank you, thank you. I might, I might even take my coat off. No need for that, Ben, no need for that. You can take some clothes off. Yeah, start with that. Start with that. And stop there. Brilliant. Um, so, obviously, you've got High Rise. Yes. Coming out. Now, that is a really uh, interesting one. Because, I mean, J.G. Ballard, not exactly the easiest person to adapt, right? I don't know. I did, did, there's been a lot of people saying, oh, you know, that the High Rise is the, you know, it is the book you can't adapt but I think Naked Lunch is a book you can't adapt. That's a really fucking hard book. But High Rise isn't as bad. Okay. You know, when I read it before, you know, when we started in on the project and I read it and I thought, you know, it's full of really amazing images and it, it has quite a, quite strong stories in it. You know, if you're going to adapt any book, it would be 
this is not too far from the tree, really. I mean, right. it's kind of got quite a lot of, um, I don't know, counterintuitive character motivations that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, it's kind of, it's not diehard. Yeah. So he does share that massive building, you know. Yeah. We did a lot of research into the small subgenre, which is big building movies, hmm. in Towering Inferno, yeah. um, Dread, The Raid, you know. All those is, is there a correlation movies. between the height of the building and how bad things get? Uh, well, I think it goes to, to hell everywhere in the building, to be fair. So, uh, yeah, it's, a, it, it's an equal opportunities apocalypse in that, yeah. in that, um, in that tower. It is, it is a brilliant head fuck of a movie. I have to say, like, and I mean that as a compliment. It may possibly not sound no, like that. We, um, love, we love I'll having our heads uh, fucked. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, who doesn't? Uh, but I kind of wanted to ask about the. Uh, this is possibly going to be a bit too inside baseball, but the visuals of the movie. Like at one point, you've got a one of Goya's black paintings um, on the wall of one of the yeah. apartments upstairs. You know, were you looking at that kind of like mad reference for for bits of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's another. It's a movie that. I, I think I got it from, obviously nicked it all from The Shining, you know. So it's kind of that thing of watching The Shining a lot and I found that it was a movie that had a, had a through line which is quite straightforward. It's quite a simple movie in that respect. But then it's jam-packed full of stuff which you can keep coming back to and back to and unpacking and unpacking and there's, you know, obviously then you end up with whole movies about unpacking The Shining, you know. And, it, and, and, and I think that's fascinating. And, it's a, and we, we tried it with... Um, Kill list was like that as well, and sightseers to a degree. So that so that there's repeat viewings, and you come back, you watch it, and then you want to watch it again. It's a sneaky marketing plan. If you make them too straightforward, they just go, "Yeah, I've got it now. Moving on." But these films are difficult. So you go, "Oh fuck, okay, I'll watch it five more times." <laughs> Titanic employed the same thing. That's why I had such a big box office. You know, it's just cynicism. You know? yeah. Well, is is this is this the first? Uh, is this the Ben Wheatley blockbuster? You know, it's, 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 it's the yeah. I wish this was recorded after it was spectacularly successful, <laughs> and then I could go, yeah, yeah. But to uh, to say yes now would, I think, would be a real, you know, asking for trouble. <laughs> It'd be lovely if everyone went. But in terms of in terms of the you know the scale and the visual effects and the cast, I mean, you know, you've you've got a fantastic cast. On this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's big and it's um, yeah. and it's quite exciting. You know, it's like we well, got sent some pictures of the posters are on the tubes. Hmm. That's always good. <laughs> you know it's lovely and we've been do, we've been touring around the country I think we've got 20 there's 20 different screen uh, 20 screenings in 12 different towns so it's like kind of a UK and Ireland tour and and it's been playing to pack sold out houses and everyone's been really enjoying it so hopefully that multiplied by the release will be good because you've I mean it, it's been ready for a while because it was talked about for Cannes last year I don't know if it was completely finished at that point oh yeah it was yeah yeah it was <laughs> So oh, it's really finished, yeah. <laughs> so is it a bit surreal to be, you know, still waiting for well, release? Well, you see, I'd say, and this is going to sound like spin, the positive answer to this, but it's true, I think. It was counterintuitive that you'd have such a gap between this, the first um, festival screening and then the release, but it's actually worked really well for High Rise, I think, because it's kind of built critically as it's gone along. So it was... Um, I've been on the other end of it, which is um, Field in England, which came out and then was gone straight away. So, um, and that has its advantages and disadvantages. But I think the the long lead in has been good, caused mainly by Star Wars and Bond, because you just can't release anything during that because it just burns. <laughs> and it's just not bloody fair, is it? Really? No, I sent them a stern letter, but they weren't listening. <laughs> uh, make your film slightly less good. They weren't having it. <laughs> 
That is weird. That is uh, that's very inconsiderate of them, frankly. Um, tell us about Tom Hiddleston. What made him the perfect guy? Because you were talking about Tom from day one, right? I mean, yeah, from, yeah. We had the um, Amy and I had the uh, Amy Jump, who's the writer, and and I am also married to. So I've, that's the new phrase. Instead of my wife, it sounds too possessive. It's horrible. So. Um, uh, the yeah, so we had this thing of like we had the actors that we wanted, and the 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 one at the top was Tom, but we never thought we'd get him. You know, I mean, that's just you do. They have to do that for every film that, that who the who the kind of cast would be, and then by hook or by crook, it slowly came true. So it was you know that was great, and I went to see him at Coriolanus, and um, and had to talk to him intelligently about Coriolanus afterwards, which was fucking terrifying to be frank. <laughs> Uh, you know, he'd only been, you know, he's only got a double first in classics from Cambridge, and I'd seen Coriolanus that day, so I think I, I think I, I think I pulled it out of the bag just about. But it was a sweaty two hours watching that play, going, "What the fuck does this mean? Oh my god, what's my what's my opening gambit?" Oh yeah, like your costume. It was a, oh, well, it was a good costume. It was a good <laughs> yeah, costume. Was good. We was, I sat next to this guy, and he was like furiously writing in this book, and I thought it was. He was like a critic or something. So I looked over and it was just like triangles and squares. <laughs> and uh, I thought, what? The, what's that? No, it was because it was a, you know, he was a lighting guy. And he was one of the dress rehearsal things. So, yeah. so that's, that's abstract. <laughs> Acrossness about shapes is always, you know, odd. I mean, you, you clearly have some, uh, some fun with the chaos and the, you know, the, uh, the collapse of this society in, in the film. Um, and there's, there, there is an amazing kind of um, tussle that happens quite, quite late on. I'm not going to spoil anything, but there is a, a BAFTA is used as a weapon yes. in this. Yes. What, what was the inspiration there in particular? And, and shouldn't it have been a biffer? No, it was a BAFTA. I mean, a, bit, a biffer's too, you know, set in the, it's set in the 70s. Either oh, yeah, well, there, yeah, there you, but, you know, yeah, It would have yeah. been a time-travelling award, and that's just <laughs> com- too complicated. But, yeah, yeah it was... Um, yeah, someone gets twatted quite badly by a BAFTA. Yeah. And I think James, it's one of the few lines of imp- improvised lines in the film, but it was James Purify, I think, going, BAFTA him! Which uh, <laughs> we, had to, we had to leave in, you know. There's many reasons for this BAFTA being in the film. One of, one of them was that I got to commission a BAFTA to be built as a prop and have my name put on it and keep it, obviously. <laughs> so I win, ha-ha. Uh, and, uh, and Laurie Rose's name on it as well, which is good. And I've always wanted to see someone killed with a BAFTA. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of things that you like to see killed, I mean, you know, um, do you have anything against dogs? No, it's weird. I don't really. Okay. No. It's a little. You know. I've seen the book, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we did Kill List, there was, I think, when we were chatting to Warp, and they'd made. I think it was something like they'd made Tyrannosaur as well that year and <laughs> killed this and they'd killed so many animals. I think they had a kind of, there's a hotline to the vets to bring in the corpses for all those movies, you know, so. But, uh, yeah, I, I've got nothing against dogs. I'm more, I am a cat man. Ah, right. But, you know, my cat is, just hates me, so. <laughs> I've had ten years of this thing and it's never let me stroke it, so I'm kind of, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. It fears me. What's your cat called? Oh, uh, Lulu. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's an energy thing, obviously. <laughs> so uh, I was going to ask just more generally about f- 
filmmaking, you are one of the more prolific directors around just in terms of you're so fast. You know, other directors are sort of still noodling around in pre-production and, and you, you've edited your next film and, you know, written, written the one after that. So you talked in a, an interview recently about this being an effort to just learn as much as possible and, and get better as uh, as fast as you can. Is that is that really what drives you? I mean, because you seem to be doing pretty well already. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... It, I've spent a lot of time not directing films as well, and um, I, you know I didn't. I think it was I was forty, just about forty, when I did Down Terrace, and that was definitely the pressure of being over forty, having not directed anything, was what was driving me forward on that. And uh, you know, and now I've got a chance to make stuff. I keep making it until they drag me away. You know? So, and it's always a, this is the question people ask is like kind of you know, oh you you're working all the time. But it's a question you would never ask of anybody else, would you? You know, ah. Oh, you work all the time, bus driver. You know, why don't you have seven years off between fucking driving your bus? And it's like, I love working because I get, I, you know, I own money and <laughs> feed my family. So working's, working's pretty important. But yeah, but also, you know, I've got a great, it's a great job. So I want to, I, I love it. And I get to, the more I get to do it, the happier I am. You know. but it, I don't know. It's just interesting because you get the, you know, the Terence Malick's, although actually his pace is now picked up a lot. He's making so up for it, isn't it? Pro rata, it, yeah. it'll be. You'll be knocking them out one a week. So. <laughs> I just think it'd be it'd be fascinating to I don't know it's it's fascinating to me how how different people's working practices are. That's all. Yeah, I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else in that respect. But from the beginning, we always had another script ready. So as soon as Down Terrace was done, while we were doing the post on that, we kind of written. Um, there, there were three scripts ready to go. Um, and that's what we showed Warp. And we had to say, you know, I had an expensive one, a, a middle budget one and a cheap one. And obviously they chose the cheap one, which was Kill List. And then I had to write, because I'd written it over the Christmas in two weeks. So I had to write draft nine on the front. And so I've been working on it for years, you know. <laughs> I went, oh, oh, God, look at all that work. I was like, <laughs> Maybe that's what everyone else is doing. They say they're taking 20 years to perfect it. Maybe they actually just aren't. No. I don't know what it is. Maybe they're doing it on manual typewriters or something. And it's just taken ages. But you've, you've already finished your next film, haven't you? Yeah. Right? right? That's Free Fire. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us so much about that at you, this point? You, yeah, sure. It's a, it's an um, American film. Set in America, it's, again, set in the 70s because that's the only place you can hide from mobile phones, ruining <laughs> thrillers, Yeah. which was the first thing. Yeah. And know. no biffers, obviously. No biffers yeah. in the 70s yeah. still. Um and uh, and it's set in Boston, and it's about these guys um, uh, played by Michael Smiley and Killian Murphy who come over from Ireland to buy guns um, uh, from American gun dealers in in Boston, and all goes well, and then it goes badly, <laughs> and it gets increasingly bad, <laughs> and they're all lots of action. Okay. So basically, I, 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 what it was was I'd seen we were watching loads of films, and I and I'd seen a lot of bl- buildings blowing up. And like massively destroyed cities, and I was getting a bit bored. I don't know what it was, and, it, and I, the, these, these images were incredible, and would have been, you know, if we'd just seen them twenty years ago, would have just knocked your socks off. But now they kind of, they just felt a bit, felt a bit sad when I watched them. And I think it, what it was was the, the, um, the movies I liked in the seventies. There was a. Um, uh, when it had, when it had action, it was personal, you know, and it was down to into my my the minutiae of ac- action, and you felt the action. But now, when you see lo- hundreds of people blowing up in a tower block, you don't feel anything about it in a movie. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, it's broken back down to that. So it's much more in your face. Okay. It sort of feels, from what I've read and, you know, heard, like it might have a bit of a Waterhill kind of a vibe to it. Is that Was that one of the filmmakers you looked at? I, it's a, he's a filmmaker I, I, I really admire, yeah. I, I, I didn't look at his stuff for this particularly, but... It, it's, yeah, it's that and Carpenter, really, I right. guess. And then all the stuff that they liked from the 40s. Right. Cool. Well, should we, uh, should we get some questions from yeah. this lot for you? Do it. Cool. Hi. I was wondering how someone went from making these sort of incredibly dark films like Kill List and Field in England to doing an episode of Doctor Who with a giant dinosaur. <laughs> well, I, I, I had to ask Which them. I love. Just okay. <laughs> I had to ask them really nicely. <laughs> I think I'd, I'd been after doing a Doctor Who episode for for a while, but it was um, I think it was Sightseers was the film that, that that allowed me to do it, where they saw they could do comedy, um, and it wasn't all bashing people's brains in with hammers and stuff. So, um, though they did watch, I think after after they'd given me the job of doing um, those episodes, they then I think the producer watched Field in England, and that was an awkward uh, afternoon when she came back. Oh, it's not going to be like that, is it? My God. But um, yeah, I mean, I was a fan from when I was a kid, and, and my son was uh, ten years old at the time, and um, and it was just brilliant, you know. And I got to, I got to make something that he could watch as well, for a change. <laughs> we got to go on the Tardis, you know, all that stuff, and it was fucking brilliant. And I blew up Daleks. I mean, you know, and just fab. Met the Doctor. Was it bigger on the inside? Yeah, yeah. It always, always is. Always. The Doctor. The Tardis. Oh. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, no. It was a total, it was a total treat. It was a big treat. Awesome. Right here in the corner. High rise, and it's fantastic. Ah, good. Um, it has one of the best poster campaigns I've seen in years, and I was wondering how involved you were in that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a director, I would now take full credit for the poster campaign <laughs> and every aspect of it. <laughs> but to be fair, I, you know, um, I, I've saw it as it went through but it was all good you know, I think that's why they've released so many because there wasn't there wasn't anything bad when they did the you know what they do usually is they do a presentation you get the six posters and you go oh ah and there's the one with the big heads and then da 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 and then you yeah and then they guide you towards one that they want to do this one was like they were all there they've actually re- you've seen them all they've, they've put them all out and they're all great so I was like oh great that's fantastic and then the, the, the trailers were the same where the trailers came out they showed me them and I you know, barely changed them um, and that does that kind of happens more often than not. To be fair, I mean the Kill List trailer was exactly the same. We saw it and thought that was fantastic. Um, but the uh, yeah, I've been really lucky with that campaign. I think, and it's one's definitely I'll be putting on my walls. Awesome. Who else have we got? Um, right over here, please, on the end. Hi. You work with a few people like Michael Smiley quite a lot. Uh, is that a positive in terms of uh, developing a relationship with the actor? Uh, and how does that change a film? Do you, like, do you work on roles specifically for him and his fellow actors? Yeah, I, I uh, write specifically for Michael, usually. Um, also, he gets in a fucking mood if he's not in stuff. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, he, and I don't think he's seen Sights yet, Sightseers yet, because he's not in it. <laughs> he refers to it as the one I'm not in. And, <laughs> so, um, yeah. But, I, you know, it's having him on set is brilliant, and I love that. And as an actor... Um, He's got so many things he does, and it's kind of like being, he does that thing of being very strong, but then being, he can go into the pathos and being like a child and being really sad and being, you know, and very, he's very, um, he can be very aggressive and yet kind of sensitive, you know. It's hard weird talking about Michael like this in a big room of people. <laughs> but he'll never hear this, will he? No, it'll be fine. It's just between us. 
Um, so yeah, that's why I work with him. That's why I work with a lot of a lot of the actors again and again because it's um, um, part of. I think part of directing, a big part of directing for me is casting. You know, and once you've got hold of someone who's good, then it's it's and you like working with them. Then the shorthand they will help you get through the day, and you know that they're, what their strengths are. And if you then tailor the roles for them, then you're always going to get good stuff out of them. So yeah. All right. Um, I can see a hand at the back on this side. Your films have like quite a lot of content in them, obviously. Uh, kind of like Kubrick and level uh, things going on under the surface, and they're quite interesting. So I was wondering like, how much of an effort you make to have stuff that you can look into and like having hidden detail to your films. Yeah, I mean, I, the, like something like High Rise is... Um, I draw a lot and do a lot of storyboards... Um, so I think High Rise there was 700 drawings for that, and for Free Fire there's 1,500. It's getting more and more, you know, <laughs> detailed these things. Um, and then work very closely with the art department. There's a lot of conversations like that, and Amy works very closely with costume and art as well. So um, yeah, I mean it's. Uh, but that's one of the great things about filmmaking, you know, that you that once you get to a certain budget level, you do have access to all these different kinds of artists you know, to work with someone like Mark Tildesley on High Rise who's, who did um, uh, 28 Days Later and he did the Olympics actually and it's uh, the opening ceremony thing with Danny Boyle and it's you know working with him is just a, just a dream come true and it just kind of starts to you know as each department gets stronger and stronger and you have a bit of money you can actually spend on stuff you, you get to control the image more and more and more um, High Rise is the first film we've had sets in um, you know, you think it's weird. It's a weird one where you know, with a filmmaker, you assume that they had that experience of shooting with sets. <laughs> I'm like six films in, and this is the first one. You know, and, it, and it's kind of like you know, it's uh, you know, we we were laughing about it the other day that the, the budget of High Rise is just tickling the bottom of low budget. You know, right. or it's balls like that. Like, Hello, <laughs> yeah. and uh, uh, I'm really happy to get to low budget <laughs> finally. So will you be signing up for a $150 million blockbuster next then, you know, as you climb the ladder? Yeah, man, yeah. If they'll let me. Yeah. <laughs> one more? We've got time for one more question. Okay, yes. Hi-ho. Um, Hi. I saw High Rise at the London Field Festival as well, and it was mindfuck, so I decided to read the book, and it was really beautiful to see all the similarities. Now I was wondering, is there a difference in your creative process in actually adapting your own material and a book which obviously you didn't write. Yeah, it's a massive difference. I mean, I think that the, the, it's more a question for Amy because I didn't write the script on this one. So that's my hot potato. Get out. <laughs> but it, yeah, I mean, it, there, there's... You know, obviously, when you write your own stuff, if you're in a sticky situation, you just can write yourself out of it really easy. And there won't be... People have done doctorates on the subject pulling their hair out and screaming at you about it. So I think that's the that's the main thing. I and mean, that was always in the back of our minds that the last people we wanted to piss off was the Ballardians and all their on all the big JG Ballard fans because that you know, we really wanted to do the book justice from our from our end, you know, to really try to get what was in the in the novel out. Um so yeah, I mean that's that's the main issue. But then on the then the flip side of that is the book the book's there and it's a blueprint for the story so you don't have to you know when it does go in a weird it pushes you in a weird place that you might not normally go to in a, in a film structure um, and then you have to deal with it and that's great and then you get the kind of odd rhythms that you have within the film um, which I really liked you know so it's kind of a it's a it's a nice problem to have rather than a than a weight you know um, 
yeah and 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 thankfully with this we've done it and then the the uh, everyone we've talked to from the the ballard end of it has been happy with it um and uh and that's great you know it would have been really bad after all that for them to come banging on our door going you've ruined our favorite book you fuck you know so uh that that is a worry well, the last thing you want is to provoke with high rises an angry mob. I mean, that would just seem yeah, yeah. a little bit too much art, uh, life imitating art. Uh, that, I think, is all the time we have. Uh, but I want to thank Ben Wheatley very much for coming thank and you. thank all of you for your Cheers. questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Brilliant. Time now for the reviews portion of the show. Uh, let's start with the new comedy from uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Grimsby, which opened in cinemas on Wednesday, uh, which is really today, but it won't be by the time you listen to this, unless you're in this room listening to it, in which case it is. Um, and in which Cohen's football hooligan, Nobby, and his long-lost super spy brother, <laughs> Sebastian, played by Mark Strong, team up to take down an evil terrorist organization, and hilarity ensues, doesn't it, Helen O'Hara, who wrote... The one-star review. Uh, I hated this. I like. Did I, you? I genuinely. You didn't get that from the review. I, <laughs> I genuinely came out feeling sick. I don't think I have that weak a stomach. I can watch most things, and I'm okay. I saw Love 3D earlier in this year. Like it's <laughs> it's fine, but this film just. No, I just couldn't hack it. And I did. I, you, Chris is about to tell you I laughed once. I did laugh once. But you did laugh once. I did. But I, I felt sick at least 30 minutes of the film. Um, and and I thought it was kind of hateful and kind of un, th- not well thought out, basically. Just, mm. just unpleasant. So basically, uh, as Chris set up the story already, um, Nobby is this absolute Tory stereotype of the average british person he's he's the he's the absolute um worst kind of tabloid picture of what a person looks like um and you know loads of kids no obvious job he may or may not be employed it's not really clear from the film probably not it makes it quite clear he's a he's a he's a he's a benefits fraud well yes he's a Certainly. cheater Certainly, he's definitely yeah. getting some money from, yeah, from benefits, taking, no question about yeah. that. Um, he likes large women, which is inherently hilarious, apparently. Um, and uh, and he's, But he's remained for years dedicated to the, the idea that one day he will find his brother again. By the way, they were separated when his brother was six, and it's been 28 <laughs> years, okay? So Mark Strong is playing a 34-year-old. Um, That's I'll, not the least believable thing in this movie. That's true. In fairness, that's uh, true. not to spoil it, but England are involved in the World Cup and they in do the, pretty well. And in the final, I wasn't. Too, you know, who's going to see Grimsby in, in, in here? I don't worry, I'm not going to spoil things. But there's a there's a hand. There's you know, there. there there are things in this movie that are pretty beyond the pale. Yeah. And then Raheem Sterling turned up <laughs> in a cameo. Actual Raheem Sterling. And I'm still angry. <laughs> it's going to take me a while to get through it, but I'll be okay. Helen. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. The two... Okay, where am I? So the two team up to try and 
unravel this plot. I mean, obviously the plot doesn't make any sense, um, but then most comedy plots don't. So actually that isn't my major problem with it. Um, there are lots of things where somebody says, oh, I find out about so-and-so and he's going to be at such and such a place tomorrow. And there's no way they could have known that. But you're like, okay, fine, it's a comedy. It doesn't make sense, whatever. Um, the problem is just how gross it is and how much it depends on just trying to shock you to get any kind of laughs the script is not clever it's not clever oh i feel like i'm taking crazy pills <laughs> i <laughs> read are... robbie's review in the telegraph and i read the one in the independent and i'm like i don't see what you're seeing here yeah it was it was a fun experience sitting next to you uh which is weird because we we watched deadpool together as well which yep. is a, a similar similar oeuvre. um and uh you loved that, I l- and that I was laughed, amazing. I laughed but nonstop, pretty much. This movie goes for things. Uh, it, it, I spoke to Louis Leterry about this movie about three months ago. It's not a name drop, it's for a piece for the magazine. Um, and he said to me, uh, there are about three or four things in this movie that have never been seen on a cinema screen before. That is true. It is absolutely true, because I was quite scornful of that. I went, that's not true, that's impossible. Uh, but it is. It, there, there are things in this movie that we've never seen before. But they didn't stop to think, and I'm paraphrasing Jeff Goldblum here, in <laughs> Jurassic Park, uh, they were too busy thinking about whether they... Could. Sh- could, could. Should, could. And they didn't could. ever think about it. They didn't stop to think whether they should. There you go, seamless yes. quote from uh, Jurassic... <laughs> Is it Park? I want to say Park. Um, yeah, it just it feels that way. Um, not to give too much away, but there there are scenes in this movie that are so scatological and push the... They don't just push the envelope, they fuck the envelope. That's basically Repeatedly, what happens. Yeah. yeah, what happens in this movie. Um, something unspeakable happens to a major actor in this film. Um, let's I'm just say the a bit worst... Sick again. Can we, like, yeah, move around it? I think people need to know. The worst <laughs> disease you can think of Yes, that one. And this actor, who doesn't deserve it. He's a lovable guy. Lovable guy. That's obviously what they think the joke is. Yeah, I don't know what the joke is there. There's a lot of things we don't know what the joke is. They obviously think that the joke is, let's have something horrible happen to a really good person. That's hilarious. Yeah. And I don't... I fundamentally don't get it. I feel like I I have a sense of humour. And yet I cannot get it. And I'm just sitting there watching it going... yeah, it's shocking. Mm. And yeah. what else? It doesn't say anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's just shocking. And it tries to have a, its cake and eat it as well. I mean, this is a movie that clearly comes down, for me anyway, I, th- I think you agree with this. Um, uh, it, it, it basically tries to have its cake and eat it in terms of portraying Nobby and the people who live in Grimsby as idiots, benefit-dodging idiots. And then at the end it goes, oh, actually, no. Uh, we're we're awesome people. And like, hey, go us! But it's completely insincere in that sentiment, and it, it's that. Yeah, I, I have real problems with that as well. The people of Grimsby are pretty angry about this, aren't they? And quite rightly so. If as well. they can team up with the people of like Kazakhstan, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they could have him killed. <laughs> Well, Is it I'm not, that doesn't the, happen, Phil. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting they Phil, do that. Phil, who's wearing a Grimsby T-shirt, uh, which he's just told me here, which is um, strange file marketing. Um, uh, I haven't seen it, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You're not consoled, okay? On it, yeah. yeah. Good, there, there are some funny moments. There's a, there's a very funny scene, in my opinion, between Mark Strong and Sasha Baron Cohen that involves. Uh, brothers doing things to each other that brothers normally don't do. There is a... Um, or maybe you do. I don't know. No, I'm not judging. Uh, and there's another scene that involves so much bodily fluid that I began to get a little envious. 
quite frankly. Uh, but no, overall, no, sick. No. Sick. I'm going to get a little sick. That's what I meant to say. Oh. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very strange movie. We gave it one star, which, as we always say in the Empire Podcast, is, is not a recommendation. Um, uh, one star. It's a, it's a hell of a week for film. Oh. It really is. It's a belter. Uh, at no point will we get to say three stars as a recommendation, apart from there. Because uh, next up is uh, Secret in Our Eyes, uh, which is a, an American remake uh, by Billy Ray of the Oscar-winning Argentinian thriller, The Secret in Their Eyes. See what they, see what they did there? Uh, this has got an all-star cast. Uh, Julia Roberts, uh, Juvedel Algiofor, and uh, Nicole Kidman are in this. Uh, is it good? Is it bad? Phil? Um, it's... <laughs> it's an American remake of a foreign language film, so I'm pretty much bound to hate it. <laughs> and we're not. Um, it's not great, to be honest. The, the 2000. Do you say 2009 Argentinian film uh, won the Oscar deservedly? Okay. It's a really interesting movie about um, you know the past, the, the sort of scars of the past that are still vivid, um, and justice, you know, being seen to be to be served. This, this one kind of transposes that into the kind of post 9-11 world so it, it condenses the 25 years of the Argentinian film to about a decade or so yeah. um, and I just feel like that whole kind of that world of America post 9-11 has been a bit done to death you know and it's been done really really well um, on TV especially with shows like Homeland this is that kind of world really good cast you know Chiwetelogy 4 is fantastic um, Julia Roberts haven't seen that much of her um, lately she's really good in it as well and Nicole Kidman likewise um, but it's just kind of boring to be honest Really dull. Uh, I know it doesn't sound like a very sort of professional and academic appraisal but you watch it and it's just really sludgy it reminded me of The Interpreter which this, to this day rem- remains the, one of the sort of greatest cures of insomnia if you don't want to stay up for the Oscars I would put that on um, and uh, it's just kind of dull and it goes on across two hours and I think a thriller needs to gain momentum whereas this one just is kind of it just becomes it's becalmed the original Argentinian film is fantastic and it's got a really really great set piece and this film does what a lot of like remakes do which is to try and kind of pay lip service to that by doing something similar but unfortunately not remotely as well. You're in a bit of a hiding to nothing because you can't just duplicate it. Um, they haven't got close to matching it in this one. So it's a, a disappointing uh, reminder that it's not as good as the one that you know they made before. Um, yeah, Billy Ray wrote the script to Captain Phillips, right? He was Oscar nominated for that, I think. Is that right? Uh, that's, and that's The Hunger Games yes. and Who Can Forget The Colour of Night. A Shattered Glass, of course. He, he directed uh, Shattered, Shattered Glass, glass yeah. which, is, um, which is fantastic and doesn't send you to sleep. Yeah, this is not his... Not his not his best work. I did enjoy um, Chiwetel's performance on the whole, and I like Michael Kelly. He's in a lot of things at the moment. He turns up as the guy that's a bit suspicious. Yeah. And he just, I don't know if you, you remember, he kind of just, he stands in front of Chiwetel, he's always in Chiwetel's character's way, yeah. and just takes the piss out of him in really immature fashion, like to the point of going, mm, because they're kind of like implacable enemies. Well, it's kind of, no, not literally, but I mean, okay. that's the next thing. Like, if, they, if the script had gone on for three more pages, there would have been that bad. Um, and I also enjoyed the fact that Dean Norris, Hank, of course, from Breaking Bad, yes. plays a character called Bumpy. Yes. So in the middle of this really serious thriller, people keep saying things like, hey, Bumpy, we need to catch that guy now. And you're like, you've said Bumpy. How can you not just stop and laugh? You're popping. Um, so, yeah, two stars, I think, that one. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I actually had a little, not trouble, but, like, I got bored trying to follow which time period you were in. It, it jumps between the past and the present. And it doesn't make it extremely clear which is which sometimes. And they're all working in the same office 
or what looks like the same office. So you're just like, wait, hang on. Especially in the first sort of 20 minutes, it takes a little while to get, oh, this is the present. No, no, that bit's the past. Okay, but this is, no, no. Yes, this bit's the present or the past. I feel it's like we may not have explained not what happens in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what, what but happens but there's, yeah. you know, there's a murder. Julia Roberts' daughter has been murdered and, and leap forward however many years, a decade or so, and Chiwetel is still obsessed with finding out what happened to her and it kind of just unfolds from there. Um, but not really very interestingly. So really? only two stars. It's one of those films that sort of mistakes like a serious tone for just total humorlessness. You know, there's no humour in it at all. I mean, there's so much sighing. Just like characters sighing at each other. <sighs> Michael Kelly's like pretty the podcast. funny, though. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he's good. pretty funny. He's good. I, I, I really enjoyed the acting, like you said. The, the, the cast is brilliant. But, I mean, Julie Ro- this is a rough estimate, but Julie Roberts' scenes are 100% crying. Like, she cries constantly throughout. Does she cry and sigh at the same time? She's she cry sighing, yeah. That's why she's an Oscar winning actress. That's very tough to do. <sighs> It's it's a weird week because you've got the two main characters from um, Pretty Woman into kind of middling <laughs> thrillers. Spoiler! Well, oh no! Sorry, I've spoiled our next review. Um, over to you, Chris. <laughs> Seamless segue. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so two stars then for The Secret in Her Eyes. Uh, if you add that to the one for Grimsby, that's three stars uh, for something. All right. Um, Next up is the Natalie Dormer horror film, the film uh, The Forest, the film for which I'd forgotten I'd interviewed her. Um, in which a twin sister ventures to Japan's notorious suicide forest. Uh, Aoki Gahara. Aoki Gahara. No relation. There's no notorious suicide forest in Northern Ireland, is there? Um, that's got dark really quickly, hasn't it's it? It's really dark. Anyway, back to the plot. Uh, yeah. So she goes to the. Uh, what's it again? Aoki Gahara. See, they just call it the Suicide Forest or the Sea of Trees. Uh, so I'll just call it that. The, the uh, Sea of Trees in search of her missing sibling. Uh, spooky film, scary film. Is oh. it? Or is it? It's, <laughs> it's actually a little... It is a little bit spooky, I think, at, at first. Um, so Natalie Dormer plays both twins. So the twin who was teaching in Japan has gone missing on a trip to the forest. The twin who is back home in, I think, the Washington area flies to to try and find her sister when she hears she's gone missing. Um, it's only been a day or so by the time she gets there. So she, you know, she visits, I think it's Tokyo. She, she finds out about her sister's school. She finds out that she's gone to this forest so she heads after her to try and find her um and she does so with the help of an american journalist um who's who's the, totally hot um <laughs> and um and also a japanese guide who they take her into the forest but when night starts to fall the, the guide wants to leave because in this telling um there are evil spirits in the forest so the idea is that in history it's not just a suicide forest but it was where people were brought when there were times of drought or famine and the old and the sick and the infirm were essentially escorted to the forest and said okay bye bye Um, and they are obviously not happy about that so they now try and and kind of lure people into the forest and kind of try to drive them mad Hmm? real place it is a real place but and it's actually almost is it is it culturally insensitive to set a horror movie there because it is a real place and people do go yeah. there and and die and yeah. you know it, it feels very 
strange. And this is the second film about this in a couple of years because there was one at Cannes last year which has not been released here. It's Naomi Watts and Matthew McConaughey and it hasn't gotten a release. And Ken That's Watanabe. how bad it is. Yeah. Gus Van Sant um, movie as well, Sea Gus of Van Trees. Sant, yeah, yeah, Sea of Gus Trees. I saw it in yeah. Cannes and it's... Um, well, and, um, and, and that tried to treat the forest a little bit more seriously but it was still... It still felt odd to mm. to be to be talking too much about this place, and I feel like it's it's probably not really a subject for filmmakers. Having said that, um, I will say the forest looks amazing. They actually shot most of they weren't allowed to shoot in the forest itself, obviously. Cultural I believe reasons. they shot it in Forest Whitaker. Is that correct? <laughs> forest Gump, but no, no. Um, they shot it in um, in Eastern Europe, and oh, okay. um, and it's and it, it looks great and everything. And I think Natalie Dormer is pretty good. It's a PG. Th- 13 or a 12a horror though and mm. and I think it is crippled a little bit by that. Yeah, it has all the the the, the things that you like in a yeah. horror film. Uh it, it tries to go it's got scary spooky things that appear out of nowhere and yeah. uh inexpertly timed jump scares. Uh but it, <laughs> but it does have his Natalie Dormer giving it her all uh, in dual roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one twin takes precedence over the other, but you know there, there's she doesn't do the Jean-Claude Van Damme thing where she just scrapes her hair back and and that's it. You know, no, she, she wears a wig. She wears a wig. Yeah, um, doesn't scrape that back either. She's just she, two two nicely uh, rounded characters, I say, and a very very good performance from her, which is, I'd say, the, the chief reason to see this movie. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's just another horror film and not a hugely successful one. Uh, although it did okay in the states, but yeah, uh, yeah uh, as with Helen, you could you, you know you could say that it's it's somewhat uh, iffy to base a horror movie on this very, very real place. Very tragic place. Uh, that's just by Mount Fuji. Uh, but two stars. Two stars for The Forest. Told you, it's a hell of a week uh, at the cinema. Uh, there are other movies available in case you, you want to go see anything else. Uh, also, well, we're not going to uh, discuss this one in great detail, but also, well, as Phil alluded to, there's a Richard Gere movie called The Benefactor, uh, which we're also giving... Two stars, too. It's a very, very solid week, at least. So we can take something <laughs> from that. Uh, so two stars for The Benefactor and two stars for everything else. Um, except Grimsby. Except Grimsby, which I would give two stars to, but Helen uh, went you know, absolutely nuclear on it and gave it one star. So there we go. That's the reviews section out of the way. Now it's time for you lot to fire questions at us, if you are so inclined. Uh, once again, the over the bloody hell, it went up immediately. Um, yeah, first of all, just wanted to give a big thanks to Chris for going out of your comfort zone and wearing your trousers tonight. No, thank you uh, very much. So thank you. Actually, you, you aren't half as grateful as we off. are. Not trousers, body paint. All right. Feels really freeing. Um, I wanted to, to uh, say thanks for your, um, your epically long interview with Chris McQuarrie. It was, it was 17 hours or something. Um, yeah, I think it's still going on, actually. So, so my question was, um, who, and this is for everyone, who in the sort of whole history of film do you think would make the most entertaining, hugely long uh, podcast interview? Helen, you start. Oh, thanks, yeah. Um, well, you, order. Wouldn't it be interesting to talk to somebody with... Uh, with a really long history of movies, like a, a you know a Catherine Hepburn or a, a Hitchcock or a Cecil B. DeMille, you know someone who was around through a really long period of, of sort of movie making and movie history. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. And then you you do literally do the Jason Isaacs approach of going year by year yeah. for all of them. And there's now 1934. <laughs> there's that new documentary coming out, um, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Mm. Um, 
So, Truffaut, obviously. <laughs> Were you shooting sides? No, no, no. I think Hitchcock would be amazing. You don't help yourself, stand. Phil, do you? <laughs> you really do, you know. Um, I don't know, but I think Billy Wilder would be pretty awesome oh, to wow, sit yeah. down and talk to you. Yeah. Well, yeah. If, if you've read Conversations with Cameron Crowe, um, the book he wrote about him, it, it, I think it is essentially that. If, if we could just release those recordings, I feel like we'd have a heck of a series of podcasts on our hands. Yeah. Is, is that possible? I mean, I don't know. We could ask Cameron Crowe. You want to ask Cameron Crowe? <laughs> Let's get Cameron Crowe in here. Okay, he'd, he'd be, come on. He'd be no. fun as well. Um, John, Helen Mirren. <laughs> <laughs> First question, Helen. How are you doing? <laughs> wow. Yeah, she'd be awesome. Uh, do you mean like a spoiler special kind of thing, where we sit down with a filmmaker and go through, you know, one film in particular? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, would Hitch- Hitchcock would be quite dry, wouldn't he? He'd be, he'd be quite. Maybe, yeah. He'd be quite fun. How about? Uh, how about Kubrick? Can we put all those conspiracy theories to rest? Absolutely. Like all of them. Yeah. Kubrick would be fun. Uh, he's uh, unavailable. The reclusive filmmaker, Sandy Kubrick. Uh, nobody's heard much from him recently. It's no. a real shame. Um, I don't know. Uh, for me, you know, I'm going to be really obvious here. Uh, Jim Cameron. <laughs> Jim. Um, Jimmy C. Jimmy C. The, the the Jay Meister, um, he's he's amazing, uh, such a clever guy, and it'd be extraordinary to sit down and talk about his masterpiece, Prana uh, Prana Two Flying Killers. Uh, that'd be <laughs> imagine the spoiler special dedicated to that. That'd be great. Also, I got into this whole job to talk to Steven Spielberg, and I still haven't. Have you not? I have not. I've been at a, a press conference at Comic Con. I didn't What's, get a question. Was that? Uh, no, no, yeah, you're just going to. No, I don't have Steven Spielberg's um, number. But I haven't. Yeah, so I, I would, you know, a proper spoiler podcast about everything with him because he doesn't do commentaries, obviously. Um, he, mm. um, but he, he's talked obviously on documentaries and in books and things like that. But it would be great to get him on a podcast. Yes. There first question: When are you going to make the new Tintin film? <laughs> I mean, I was going to go with first question: Why are you so great? Second question: Will you be my friend? I thought that'd be a, like a nice opener. The hard-hitting stuff. The hard-hitting stuff. Real exactly. Woodward and Bernstein stuff. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, any other questions? Yes, please. Right here. Oh my God! There, there's a gentleman with a beard and a hand, and they're not t- attached. He's not like some freakish mad scientist who's brought a hand beard with him. That would be, that'd be just weird, right? Yes, please. Hi. Um, uh, speaking to the mentioning of Edgar Wright earlier, um, what? sort of filmmakers that are still theoretically active but hadn't made a film in a while uh, would you like to see a film from? Do you remember when Secret in Their Eyes was you know, basically just people sighing at each other this is essentially what it's going who's it going to be? How long since like, Ron Howard how made a movie? Do, uh, how do who hasn't done stuff recently and isn't doing stuff at the moment and that I can remember that I like yeah uh, that's pretty much it that's pretty much it uh, what am I, I'm going to do a cop out answer because uh, I've already mentioned it already but you know I'm delighted that Paddy Constantine's directing another movie because mm-hmm. I, I just absolutely loved the hell out of Tyrannosaur it's uh, fantastic uh, also Ben Wheatley hasn't directed a movie for three weeks <laughs> so he's getting a little bit itchy he needs to get behind the camera again um, that'd be great but yeah Paddy Paddy Constantine really and I, you know, honestly you know anyone who listens to the podcast regularly um, will know that I'm a big Evil Dead 2 fan I'm a big Sam Raimi fan um, and it's been a while for him I believe his last film was also great and powerful um, and I choose to pretend that one doesn't exist so <laughs> let me go back a little bit longer uh, and then it's drive me to hell uh, so it's, it's been a long long time for him and I'd like to see him do something else again I know he directed the pilot of Ash vs. Evil Dead but I'd like to see him do another movie Steven Soderbergh 
I just thought of. Yes. I know he's not really doing films anymore, but he can bloody... But he is. He's, 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 so. he's announced he's done another one. He did? I yeah. think that was... He's that the just worst a retiree no, in he's history. No, he said he, said he is. Yeah, it was announced in, in Variety. And John, I imagine Helen Mirren for you would be the... Uh, she has directed. Yes. <laughs> I'd like to see uh, Paul W.S. Anderson direct Event Horizon 2. Yes! Who no. wouldn't like to see that? That'd be amazing. That's What's craven. happened to all those, those, those great characters whose names that we just burned into our heads? Um, right, next question, please. Uh, right here in the front row. Thank you. Cynicism aside from the R-rated Batman, Superman, etc., etc., is there a family-friendly film or, you know, a superhero-y type movie that you would like to see as an R-rated film that's normally a PG-13. Like, I'd quite like to see Star Wars done with a, you know, maybe not with limbs flying everywhere, but, you know. An R-rated Star Wars. So are we talking R-rated for violence or for sex or for both? Like, is there a rule here? Dealer's choice. Dealer's choice, okay. The first one, New Hope, obviously lends itself. There's tons of innuendo in there, so you would have to go the sexy route with that, obviously. You know, they came from behind, pull out, you're doing no good back there, all that sort of stuff. You can just imagine that everyone's chuckling in the cinema. It's, it'd, be, it'd be great, you know. I think it would be great anyway. But and then the and then the second one, Empire Strikes Back, would be would be ultra violent. Uh, no, actually, no. Empire Strikes Back would be swearing. Okay, look, I am your fucking father. That kind of thing, right? And then Return of the Jedi would just be ultra violent with lots of decapitated Ewoks and just Ewoks on spikes and burnt Ewoks and Ewoks in soup and all sorts of. Basically Ewoks just being killed for two hours repeatedly. That'd be great. Wow, I feel like we're getting a really disturbing look into Chris's head right now. So, so what superhero film would you like to see being given the R-rated treatment? I've, I've got one. It's not a superhero, sorry. Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's almost an R-rated movie anyway. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Or specifically Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. That's my... One of my all-time favourite films. That's your touchstone it's film, isn't it? my top, top five. That, I mean, imagine that with, like, you know, blood and guts and <laughs> shooting. And mm. It would be brilliant. I actually, I actually got a, a doctor to, to watch Home Alone and tell me what injuries they would actually have suffered. And, and the answer is, like, a lot. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they, they could probably have broken their backs on those, on those steps at the beginning. Um, but definitely getting an iron that's heated that falls 30 feet into your face would 100% break your nose but also break like your cheekbones so your whole front of your face would be like caved in and they didn't show you that did they they do show you that weirdly enough in the Omen 3 the final conflict well there you go uh, so it's the Omen cross with Home Alone it's the Omen Alone yeah oh my god what a film what a film (laughs) Damien is Home Alone and priests are coming to kill him with the seven tigers of Megiddo. Oh my god, this is amazing. Hello, Hollywood? <laughs> I've got your next blockbuster. Uh, they, they hung up. Anyway, um, Phil. Yes. Superhero films, obviously, in your wheelhouse. Superhero films? Yeah, or, they're, they're or films, comic films. films about uh, people who yeah. are superheroes. Tell me more. What happens? It's not important right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, oh, Dick Tracy. It's not a superhero film. It's a comic book film. It's a comic book film. It's a comic book film. That's fine. Acceptable. Violent version of Dick Tracy yeah directed by Martin Scorsese <laughs> that would you're not be happy with Warren Beatty directing this ultra-violent Dick Tracy uh, no okay obviously otherwise wow. they would have said continue with the same director <laughs> <laughs> sorry I didn't, um, I didn't catch the no, vibe no, no. 
Um, how about an R-rated Winter Soldier? For violence, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I'm with you until the end of the line, pal. <laughs> oh, I'm with you. Um, yeah, that, that'd, that'd be that'd be yeah. pretty awesome. Okay. Yeah, that'd okay. be good. Um, although uh, this is a, this is a problem I have at the moment because. Deadpool's fine. It's not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's, it's you know you can you can swear and say the f word and which is the same as swearing, I believe. And uh, you can have ultra violence and jokes about farting and IKEA, and that's all great. I get it. I really like the film, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe itself, okay, for me is a beautiful and pure place. And I've been watching Jessica Jones recently, and there is a lot of graphic sex in that. <laughs> And my wife's here tonight, and she will attest that every time there's a sex scene uh, in which Jessica Jones and usually Luke Cage are going at it uh, in a way that would just make your eyes turn white, um, my face is like this. <laughs> I don't know where to look. It's great radio there. This is. Because, yeah. <laughs> I, A, I don't know what's happening. Uh, oh, your poor wife. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. And B, all I can think of is this is the same world in which Steve Rogers, the poor virgin, is just the poor 95-year-old man who hasn't had sex. They say he's not a virgin. He's lying. When could he possibly have had sex? He, he's going, his first kiss is with Natalie Dormer, who I interviewed in the newish of Empire. Uh, it's in there, £4.50, <laughs> all good new news agents right now. His first kiss is with her. Then he has a peck in the cheek from Peggy. Then what happens? He, di- he takes a dive, but not that one. He takes a dive into like a big snowy waste, yeah. and he, he's in a coma for 75 years. He says that in Avengers Age of Ultron at the very end. So, you know, and then he wakes up. And he's like talking about all these women that he kind of likes, but he's not quite sure about. So when has Steve Rogers ever sealed the deal except on maybe Babe Station? That's what I'm saying. So he is... He's, babe Station? Well, we see him chatting up a waitress Station? in the in the deleted scenes from Avengers. But he's don't out see there them. in the world. And would he lie to Black Widow? I don't think so. Yes, I think he would, no. because he's trying to seem cool within the moment. See, uh, but what I'm saying is basically, so these sex scenes in Jessica Jones are pretty near the knuckle. Have you tried writing to Billy Zane? Uh, about this I may well do because I, I have a real problem with this I just I keep thinking of poor Steve and I just think that this it really helps it really helps believe me and I just I, I, I just worry I worry about about the the violence of the sex scenes in Jessica Jones and, and the impact that will have on Steve Rogers I hope that answered your question <laughs> I hope you don't horribly regret asking it. Do we um, have yeah, any more questions? We've got time for uh, five, five, five more. Five more. <laughs> what? No one says that. <laughs> We've got Just 17 more questions. <laughs> Hi. I would absolutely love it if you could discuss Sigourney Weaver, who's my absolute favourite actress. She's a goddess. I mean, just, what's I wondered, what is your favourite Sigourney Weaver moment? Mm. And... Actually, where you see her career going as an older woman in Hollywood, what kind of roles would you like to see her do? All right. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I mean, well, um, favourite moment, uh, like all of Working Girl. She's brilliant in Working Girl. Um, but maybe it would probably have to be Aliens and it would have to be the scene where she suggests that they take off and you it for more bit because it's the only way to be sure. Um, because I utterly love the interplay between her and Michael Biehn in that scene. I think it's amazing. So that's my favourite. It's very sexy. And where scene. do I sit? No, what? Why? It is. 
It's very sexy. I sexy, thought you said yeah. sexist. I'm like, it's not. No, no, no. It's um, no sexy. No. It's incredibly no, sexy. When he, when he repeats exactly what she said, um, oh, sexiest line in Hollywood history. It's amazing. Um, yeah. So that. Uh, and where do I see her career going? Hopefully anywhere she bloody wants it to. Uh, she's in, um, weird enough, A Monster Calls, which yes. is out later in the year, uh, directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, based on the book by Patrick Ness, as someone won in the spot prize earlier Over on. There. Phenomenal book, and I hope it's going to be a phenomenal film because he's a brilliant, brilliant director. Uh, that movie's going to rip your tear ducts out and do unspeakable things to it. Uh, Liam Neeson as a tree. Trust me, it's going to be amazing. And Sigourney Weaver as, uh, as uh, a grandmother who's quite prickly. She's going to be fantastic in that role. And Felicity Jones in it as well. So, uh, yeah. My choice, I love Sigourney Weaver, she's amazing, uh, is the scene in Ghostbusters that continues to put the willies up me, uh, which is Ooh. where she comes back to her apartment. Yeah, steady. Uh, she comes back to her apartment and the arms rip through the chair. Uh, it's just terrifying. Uh, you know, even now, I'm, blue, I'm glad this chair doesn't have arms. Uh, 16 more questions <laughs> uh, I write for my student magazine and we do film reviews and everything and at the start of every month we bagsy them and obviously like I think I bagsied uh, Gods of Egypt for the lols and it's now been moved, uh, moved out <laughs> I bagsied Pride and Prejudice and Zombies which I really liked but because you wrote the review for Grimsby which uh, I was wondering how you went around assigning those reviews because you obviously see a lot of the films and Chris you do the Radio 6 show and I mean, you all have different things outside of Empire. So, how do you approach writing the reviews? And like, do you approach them when you've got something really good to say about a really good film with excitement? And when you've got something horrible to say about a horrible film, do you get excited or just depressed? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I was a bit nervous about uh, Grimsby because you know, lots of people really liked it. And I actually, when I when I submitted the review, I said honestly, if if I'm way out of line and everybody else has loved this, like feel free to bin this and get someone else to write it. I just cannot write a different review of this film. But I mean, so I have I have previously been reviews editor, and what you try to do is to an extent match the person to the film. Um, and give them something that they're going to have a chance of liking. There's no point in sending someone to, to something that you know they they like automatically go in expecting to hate it. It's generally a bad way to be, I think. Um, but at the same time, the ideal situation to me, and, and what, what we'd like to do, if possible, for all big films, the ideal is to all go and have a discussion about it and the person who feels strongest about it writes the review. That's that's the dream scenario. It doesn't always happen. Something like Star Wars The Force Awakens, uh, the very first screening was two days before release. It was press day. Um, and so whoever went, and we were only allowed one seat uh, to the morning screening, whoever went to the morning screening was going to have to write it in about three hours and, and get it right mm. without... Um, without discussing it at all with anyone. And this is against a background of Empire sometimes getting Star Wars reviews, like, <laughs> a teensy bit wrong. I, um, I don't... I don't recall. I'm, so I was... Oh, well, I wrote a five-star review of Attack of the Clones. What? <laughs> That's what it is. No, don't be silly. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was a bit nerve-wracking. Uh, and in that... It, you try to feel as sane as possible that day and hopefully be as balanced as possible. Um, but yeah, it's, there is no right answer to reviewing because you don't want to be too easy on something. You don't want to send the, the world's biggest... Like Ian Freer rarely got to review Spielberg films because Ian Freer was the, is the biggest Spielberg fan in the world. Um, so we tended not to give him the review, we tended to give him the feature. Yeah. Um, 
And also, if you've been on set of a movie, that, that tends yeah, that, to disqualify you. Or if you have yeah. in some way connection to people who worked on the film, which yeah. which can happen, then that automatically disqualifies you from writing uh, a piece in that as well. But yeah, it, it, I think I think I've spoken about this in the podcast before. Is that you know one one of the easiest things in the world is to write a bad review. Yeah, and I don't just mean a badly written review, although that's very easy for me. Um, but just to to, to look at a bad film and try and pick it apart with relish um, and I think a lot of reviewing these days falls into that, that very negative very binary trap of mm. something's either really really good or something's really really bad and you can feel you can feel the excitement in a writer when they have singers that they just want to skewer a film with and I yeah it's very very difficult to avoid that trap when you have a film like Grimsby but you know, uh, and I think Helena avoided it uh, admirably. Although oh, you can feel the pulsating anger uh, rippling <laughs> through her review. Yes, <laughs> there's definitely the anger there. But yeah, it's it's much easier to write uh, a review of a film that you love or hate, and it's extremely difficult to write one that you are uh, about. Yeah. Um, hope that answers your question and that is a good time to wrap up uh, that is it from our 200th podcast uh, live at the Prince Charles Cinema uh, thanks to everyone who made it possible including uh, Last Exit to Nowhere uh, Organic Marketing E1 Substance Studio Canal for their amazing spot prizes thanks of course to Paul Fickery and the team at the Prince Charles Cinema uh, absolutely amazing could not have done this without, without them and we couldn't have done it without you guys um, thank you so much for coming this sold out in a day which kind of confounded us and, and terrified us in equal measure. And we hope we've entertained you tonight and we you know, hope you enjoyed the guests uh, as well. Uh, your continued support is why we're here. Uh, four years ago, we basically did a podcast without telling the editor of Empire we were doing a podcast. And we're, we're so gratified that you uh, like the show enough to come and pay for, to see us uh, and listen to us every week. We're very grateful for that, so thank you so much. And uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. Uh, we'll be joined by The Walking Dead star, Andrew Lincoln, Rick Grimes himself, and two promising young directors, Joel and Ethan Cohen. They'll be talking about their new movie, Hell Caesar. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Yes, fuck it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm reading this. It's like literally people saying goodbye. Until then, it's goodbye from John. <laughs> Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil the Semlian. Au revoir. He's off, off to drag a boat over a hill. That's what, that's what Phil's doing. It's just for shits and giggles. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to remove my body paint and watch Grimsby with Sigourney Weaver. Thank you so much for coming. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.